This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, and we are back with four hours full of blight, authoritarianism, disenfranchisement, and discrimination. So sit down, try to relax while hearing people discuss blight, authoritarianism, disenfranchisement, and discrimination. Get your coffee or whatever. Your beverage of choice is ready, but I'd suggest coffee because, again, blight, authoritarianism, disenfranchisement, and discrimination. Second thought, maybe coffee isn't best. Get your bong or bowl or vape pen. And keeping in mind, a lot of the questions you'll hear me ask this week were written while I was high on steroids and weed. This is hell. Yeah, I'm on steroids now, but if you want to hear my full health report you have to sign up for our podcast only show at patreon.com slash this is hell that's patreon.com slash this is hell where you can also get an update on the war on rats raging at our office and studio space and the fight against the hoarder that continues at my own home but that's on our podcast only show again at patreon.com slash this is hell right now on our live four hour saturday morning this is hell broadcast from the studios of wnur 89.3 fm Evanston, Chicago's sound experiment. Our first guest this week is reporter Allie Gross, who wrote the investigative journalism piece in the Detroit Free Press, Detroit Real Estate Game Creates Chaos in Neighborhoods. And that pretty much sums the story up. Our next guest will be, no, seriously, that's what exactly happened to Detroit. And Allie's not talking about something that happened during the white flight of the 1970s or the collapse of the auto industry or the abandonment of the city in the 1990s, leading to the ruin porn that attracted so many back to Detroit in the early, ni- or early 2000s. But blight caused in the last few years since Detroit declared bankruptcy. Blight caused by faraway investors who are buying up homes and hope for a quick flip as Detroit's economy turns around. But the investors often force out residents or leave homes vacant as they wait for the big payday to happen. Being impatient, of course, they sell the homes, which become included in bundles of homes that are swapped in the ethereal world of financialization while having a devastating impact on the real world of Detroit's neighborhoods. The market they may work in theory, but it sure as hell doesn't work in Detroit's neighborhoods. Prior to pursuing a career in journalism, Allie worked as a fifth-grade teacher in Detroit, where she co-founded Detroit Charter Data, a website aiming to bring accountability, transparency, and coherence to the city's education landscape. Find out more about Allie and find all of her writing at allisongross.com. Following our conversation on how financialization is causing blight in in destroying Detroit's neighborhoods, we'll have the return of... Now we have to flip these around. Award-winning historian Carol Anderson, author of the new book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, which has afforded by the U.S. Senator from Illinois, Democrat Dick Durbin. Carol was on the show back in June of 2016 to talk with us about her New York Times bestseller and notable book of the year, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. White Rage was a National Book uh, Critics Circle Award winner, won all sorts of rewards. I don't want to go through the whole list right now, but it was also named one of our favorite books to be featured on the show in 2016. This month, Carol also released a young adult adaptation of White Rage called We Are Not Yet Equal. And uh, she wrote that with children's literature writer Tanya Bolden. And what's happening with black voting rights 
is happening yet again. Another example of what Carol causes white rage. That is, whenever blacks win any rights, whites viciously backlash against those rights, and especially in cases like voter discrimination based on race, use trickery and fraud to frame discrimination with race-neutral innocence in order to keep political representation and power out of the hands of African Americans to continue antebellum white supremacy. Instead, since the end of the Civil War, Southern states have held the Constitution in contempt, and they mock the right of blacks to vote. Unfortunately, those ideas have become so mainstream. They're shared by the current Supreme Court Chief Justice, as well as his predecessor. We'll learn the disturbing past and present of electoral discrimination against African Americans in the United States and its impact on all our culture when we welcome back to the show Carol, who is the Samuel Candler Dobbs Professor of African American Studies at Emory University and has a whole bunch of other bona fides that make her an expert on inequality and discrimination. Okay, uh, let's see. After our conversation on how the U.S. has, uh, you know, discriminated against African Americans historically at the uh, voting booth, we will be speaking with, we'll have the return of, practicing clinical psychologist Bruce E. Levine, author of the new book, Resisting Illegitimate Authority, A Thinking Person's Guide to Being an Anti-Authoritarian. Anti-authoritarianism is the challenging of not all authority, but illegitimate authority. Here in the States, we celebrate that kind of challenging of illegitimate power in our national myth, but we don't celebrate it in practice. In fact, we criminalize it, even pathologize it, turning anti-authoritarianism into a behavioral disease that needs to be corrected by drugs. In today's U.S., anti-authoritarianism has been demonized to the point we've nearly exercised it from our body politic, leaving a perfect opening for authoritarianism to emerge as it has done recently. So great job wiping out anti-authoritarianism, America. Now we're stuck with neo-Nazi white supremacists. We'll talk anti-authoritarianism and you can play the take a shot or do a hit game where you do either or both every time we say the word authoritarianism. During our interview with Dr. Levine, who is on the editorial advisory board of the journal Ethical Human Psychology and Psychology. Psychiatry, the Medical and Scientific Advisory Board of the National Center for Youth Law, and all sorts of organizations that are related to rights of those who are supposedly suffering from psychological trauma. Once we get through all the ugliness of uh, racial discrimination, all the ugliness of our pathologizing of anti-authoritarianism, we'll start our fourth and final hour of this week's This Is Hell. Don't worry, we'll be back next week with another four-hour This Is Hell, unless my horrible illness has some sort of awful relapse which was happening this morning. We'll have the return of yet another guest, writer and editor Megan Erickson, as our final guest this week, who posted the Jacobin article, A Blueprint for Universal Childhood. For as much as we claim to love our kids and value them more than anything else in the world, for as much as we screamed, what about the children during the culture wars, you'd think we prioritize quality and accessible child care, especially during our current age of two-income families being necessary to pay for that child's present as well as their future. But we don't. In this private world of child care. Workers are paid poorly. Tuition is at times astronomical. We have few regulations and little oversight of the facilities, and parents regularly put their kids in actually life-threatening danger when they drop them off. Don't get me wrong, it's not child care's fault. The idea of child care, the concept is perfect, and there are plenty of good facilities, but trying to figure out which facilities are best and which are, well, not good for your kid, is a very difficult thing to do within its current privatized structure. However, if we had universal health care that is of high quality, or that would be of high quality, like the rest of the industrialized West, and even in some countries that aren't as economically advanced, 
which is what the vast majority of U.S. voters actually want, then all these problems would be solved. Megan, who is an editor at Jacobin and has taught in both public and private schools in New York City, will explain why we need universal health care or child care and fast. Megan was on our show nearly three years ago to this very day to talk about her then-just-published book, Class War, the Privatization of Childhood. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a moment of truth when Jeff Dorton returns, and this time Jeffy discovers micro-generations, and I think I know what that means because I've never really felt part of any of the generation labels or stereotypes that might apply to me. And I'll reveal my guilty pleasures that I indulge myself in when I'm sick, That is, unless I feel so guilty about them that I just can't bring myself to revealing them. All that stuff, plus all show, listener feedback. Got lots to catch up on from the last several weeks as I was on vacation, got sick. One of our shows was abbreviated to an only an hour, and I got sick again. We'll also find out what else has been up to on social media. Of course, we'll have the question from Hell, and this week's winner gets a new, completely redesigned This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can get right now by supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com and clicking on, you guessed it, support. We also want to thank uh, people for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to Twist Off Knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. But again, lots of listener feedback. We'll open with some guest suggestions, and then the second half will give you the more wackier listener feedback we've received of late. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Uh, Let's start in alphabetical order is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, How's your uh, weed and steroid combination doing for you? Uh, Horrible. You're seeming like a mellow alpha, so maybe it's working. Oh, dude. Right now, I'm just like sweating from places I usually don't sweat from. And I think it's happening yeah, internally. We don't need to go any further. I think it's happening internally. You're sweating actually. internally? Yeah, I think my brain is actually sweating right now. And also Leo O'Connell. Hello, Leo. How are you, sir? Hello. Doing good. Good to hear. Good to hear. Do you have those uh, computer monitors for me still? I, I do. Excellent. I will want to get those from you soon as we continue working on the studio. They're yours. This is Hell is broadcast live without interruption on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment, streaming live online at our website, thisishell.com, podcast shortly after at the same place, thisishell.com, airing an abbreviated one-hour version on Sunday mornings in Moscow. Idaho on KRFP and on Lumpin' Radio in Chicago's South Side. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And here's this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is from a listener, Richard M., who writes, IDK if this was already a Hangover Cure, but Facebook gave me this ad. If it's good enough for Facebook's algorithm to conclude they need to push it on listener Richard M. on his timeline, then who are we to doubt this Hangover Cure's effectiveness? That makes this week this week's hangover cure H-proof chewable tablets, as their site says. Cheers tonight! After drinking, take H-proof crush tomorrow. <laughs> it apparently includes 15 vitamins, including B vitamins, antioxidants, liver detoxifiers, and electrolytes that help support healthy brain, liver, and body function. That makes this week's hangover cure the cure pushed on listener Richard M by Facebook H-proof. This is hell does not endorse H-proof in any way. In fact, we think it's likely another one of those online scams. Sorry, Richard. This is hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. An exceptional read, by the way there, Leo. Prove us wrong. 
This is hell. Like I said earlier, you can hear all about the rat wars that are happening at our new studio, the hoarder battle at my own home, all my health news, everything that's wrong with me. You can hear that on our podcast exclusively at patreon.com slash this is hell. But there's a different aspect of being sick that I didn't mention during this week's podcast. When you're as sick as I have been, you can't do anything. When you can't do anything, you get depressed. After a while, the depression starts wearing on you so much. Well, the depression gets really, really boring. So now you're helpless, and your helplessness is compounded with depression, and that depression gets even worse yet because you're bored with being helpless and depressed. It's a horrible spiral. It's more fun than a barrel of monkeys, which is the kind of thing my illness-addled brain thought about over the past month. Of course, even being this sick is more fun than a barrel of monkeys because that sounds cruel, and hearing their shrieking screams begging for escape doesn't sound fun at all for the monkeys or the person sitting next to the sealed barrel. I don't care what my diagnosis eventually is. Whatever disease I have is definitely more fun than the torture machine that is a barrel of monkeys. I was eventually relieved to discover that this 19th century term, more fun than a barrel of monkeys, is actually sarcastic. So when you say that something is more fun than a barrel of monkeys, you're saying it's not fun at all. The problem is, when I was a child, I was given a toy called a barrel of monkeys with a plastic barrel and monkeys that I was told was indeed fun, but it wasn't. All it was is a bunch of plastic monkeys you were supposed to link together to make a chain. That's it. So maybe Hasbro toys were being sarcastic too. I don't know. See? That's the kind of random thinking that happens when you have a disease-addled brain that is striving for anything that is both physically unchallenging and somehow not boring and can fight off your depression. For me, those guilty pleasures include stupid thought projects like demystifying terms like more fun than a barrel of monkeys and undoing my own cultural associations with terms like more fun than a barrel of monkeys. That is to say, stupid, pointless mind exercises which dwell on the trivial and pointless. That's why so many of us, when we are sick, and end up watching The Price is Right. When you are of fit mind and body, there's no way in hell you're going to catch me watching a second of The Price. But give me some, uh, give me the, uh, some undiagnosed disease that makes me cold, hot, weak, and dizzy, and it's time to watch some Plinko. But The Price gets boring really fast, too, because in the end, it's a sad show, and more importantly, it sucks. People desperate for a chance to win appliances traveling great distances confined in a TV studio for hours hoping that they walk away with the most economy level of cars and all the tax obligations of which they were completely unaware. See, that's what happens to the price when you work on a show like This Is Hell that focuses on the inequalities and unfairness of the world, and you are deliriously, dizzyingly ill, alone, at home, Sick, you consider other indulgences. Sure, there's porn, but being sick can be a real turnoff when entertaining yourself. Have you been with someone while they are sick? It's, it's really gross. There's all sorts of unwanted, unexpected, and uninvited fluids that get involved. And even if you achieve success, it's really more of a pyrrhic victory, a, ver a victory that inflicts such a devastating toll on the victor that it is the same as defeat, negating any true sense of achievement. Yep, that pretty much describes entertaining yourself or being entertained by others. 
while you're sick. Still bored and still alone, I tend to indulge even further into my guilty pleasures, the pleasure for which I feel sh the pleasures for which I feel real shame. The pleasures I would never discuss on This Is Hell because I would never want to endorse them or give them any more attention than they already undeservedly receive. Guilty pleasures that my partner and I do not share. In fact, as a cisgender, heterosexual male, any woman who has the guilty pleasures that I have completely turns me off. I've met people who insist that their partners share in all their guilty pleasures and couldn't imagine being with someone who didn't. But those indulgences ravage me with guilt, and I don't want to drag someone else into my guilty pleasures so we can wallow, even drown together in their base, filthy, mindless entertainment. Therefore, without endorsing any of my guiltiest of pleasures, without being specific enough to give any sense that I am supporting any of these self-serving, almost masturbatory indulgences, when I'm sick and I'm helpless, bored and depressed, seeking the mindlessness that is the level of concentration I am able to attain while ill, I watch lots of sports, travel, cooking shows, often bad cooking shows, and history, bad history shows, all horrible, horrible video programming. I try to watch the news or movies or documentaries, but my mind fades and I end up rewinding so many times that it takes hours to get through mere minutes. With my sickened brain's brain, with my sickened brain's gears lodged in short-term concentration, my attention on the history shows never lasts long. Hitler footage does not make me undepressed. Then it's the travel shows, and suddenly you realize you hate the privileged people who are traveling and the way they treat the locals like zoo or even circus animals there for their entertainment. So it's onto the cooking shows, which are often in part travel shows, and you get sucked into the travel or the food when you notice that, again, Jesus, these people are friggin' rich, and they sure seem to be promoting a culture of overconsumption, the kind that has led to climate change. At least they're enjoying their pressed duck, which frightens me because... To me, that freak show of pressing a duck into a slurry through a beautifully decorated brass vice canister from the 19th century, that actually looks delicious. Which leaves me with sports and their violent exhibition of corporate promotion. Doesn't matter the sport, and I won't tell you which sports or leagues I follow, but they would definitely surprise you. They all endorse extremist nationalism and militarism. They promote war and death. They subject their fans to propaganda meant to actually get some of them to join the military and kill other human beings. They impose upon their fans unsafe environmental conditions and promote those conditions. They waste resources from public money that could be used to help end poverty, protect and educate all the children in our country, and address social concerns like public health and justice. Sports exploit the poor and people of color and continue the process of racial discrimination and when they're not doing that they're unfairly giving uh, far more advantages to white athletes than those who are not white and when they're not doing that they're exploiting promising athletes and their desperate families and developing economies sports steals from the poor and gives to the rich even the products they sell, the souvenirs, are made in sweatshops, and those products are only made to continue the cycle of doing nothing more than promote their brand. And they don't even have to pay people to promote their brand for them. Fans will actually pay the sports industry to promote the sports industry's brands. And again, that's after the sports industry sucks, us, uh, sucks up billions in public money that could be used to help those citizens. There is one guilty pleasure, one show I want to endorse. And I've mentioned it in the past, and it was, again, one of my guilty pleasures while I was dizzy and sick. If Black Lives Matter activists want to know what white privilege is really like and what white people's relationship is with police, 
watch Animal Planet's Northwoods Law. You will not believe what cops out in the sticks let white people get away with. Have some stolen ATVs on your property? Don't worry about it. The cops will tow them away for you. Drunk fishing without a lesson? license? You're in for it now. Here's a warning. Seriously, it is the most revelatory show about white privilege on any platform today. Yes, I have horrible guilty pleasures, and when I'm sick, they come to the fore. They're my fallback when nothing else seems to find me, give me any happiness. When I'm too sick and too brain-addled to entertain myself in any other way. Maybe more than guilty pleasures, they're depressing pleasures. That I don't feel guilt for liking these things, but that my interest in them now bores me. Maybe I'm bored with my guilty pleasures. I, I, I don't know. I'm still sick. And that's why for me, this is hell. And this week's question from hell is, what's your fall look? What's your fall look? All replies get read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins the newly redesigned This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can get right now by supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com and clicking on support. Again, the question from hell is, what's your fall look? What's your fall look? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you have one. We got a couple of minutes while we are waiting to get connected with Allie Gross to tell uh, tell us how investors uh, expanded blight in the Detroit area. So let's go into listener feedback for a couple of seconds while we wait to connect with Allie. Uh, this week, we're splitting them into guest suggestions, splitting our listener feedback into guest suggestions, of which our listeners always have great ideas for interviews. And uh, then in the second segment, second part of listener feedback this week, we'll get into the wackier side of our communications with listeners. The first email to chuck at thisishell.com is from Christine, who writes, Hey, I adore This Is Hell. This show is amazing, and I recommend it to everyone I meet. Possible guests for you? She suggests Sean Brennan has started a company that educates people on the concept of food justice, which focuses on the intersection of diet and mental health. He also educates people on the politics that influence our diet. His website is brainfoodgo.org. That's brainfoodgo.org. Christine also suggests Kendall Atterbury. He is a Ph.D. student at NYU, or she is, um, her research is focused on the intersection of late-stage capitalism and mental health treatment. She hasn't written a book yet, but the articles she has published are amazing. Thanks for doing such solid work on your show. Now I'll keep getting the word out about This Is Hell. Sincerely, Christine. It's that kind of support that gets your email read on the air and fast and first. So thanks, Christine, and we will be looking into both as we are trying to find topics that we rarely, if ever, have touched on in the past here on This Is Hell. And the intersection of diet and mental health, as well as the intersection of late-stage capitalism and mental health treatment, are two concepts we have not featured in the past. So again, thanks. We really appreciate it, Christine. Murray sends a guest suggestion. As a potential guest, please consider Joe Peshek a political science professor at Hamline University in St. Paul, Minnesota. For many years, Joe was editor of New Political Science, and he co-wrote The Unsustainable Presidency a few years ago for a recent conference. Uh, he wrote a yet-to-be-published paper that has a provocative discussion of Trumpism in terms of cultural theory, class dominance theory, and capital accumulation theory. 
The book's entire title, by the way, is The Unsustainable Presidency, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Beyond, and it came out in 2014. It received a glowing review from a past guest on This Is How, sociologist Michael Schwartz at SUNY Stony Brook, so we will be looking into it, and we appreciate the tip, Murray. And I'll look into this more, uh, his more recent speech because I'd like to get back to the conversation we were having about the power of the presidency, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago when everybody was afraid of the George W. Bush administration. So, yeah, we will look into all of those. I truly appreciate Murray and Christine's suggestions, and we'll get back into listener free feedback in just a moment. moment. But first, coming up on this week's This Is Hell, blight in Detroit caused by financialization and outside investors. There's a long history of black voter disenfranchisement in the South, and the Re- Republican Party has been actively and recently in, uh, been invigorating, reinvigorating that disenfranchisement. Anti-authoritarianism has been not only criminalized, but pathologized, turning it into a disease here in the U.S., helping the rise of authoritarianism. Discrimination against child caregivers in America's privatized daycare industry reveals why the U.S. needs to join the rest of the industrialized and some of the non-industrialized world in providing universal daycare. And Jeff discovers micro-generations, all uh, all that stuff, plus more listener feedback. Uh, We'll tell you what Alex has been up to on social media. Question from hell. We have a whole bunch of listeners to thank for supporting This Is Hell. Maybe twist off knowledge. Of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. Detroit has experienced yet another new menace that has caused extensive blight. And it has only happened in the more recent years, the last few years. Here to tell us how financialization and outside investors recently made things far worse in Detroit's neighborhoods, right when people were hoping the city was making a comeback. Reporter Allie Gross wrote the investigative piece in the Detroit Free Press, Detroit real estate game creates chaos in neighborhoods. Property speculation brings dysfunction to Detroit's housing market, exacerbating blight and instability in the neighborhoods. Welcome to This Is Hell, Allie. Hi, Chuck. Hi. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. As I was leaving uh, Houghton Lake, I was at Houghton Lake for my vacation, and as I was leaving, I picked up a Detroit Free Press on. And that Sunday morning, I saw your uh, newspaper article, and I was like, I have to have Allie on the show. You can follow Allie on Twitter at Allie underscore Elizabeth. That's with an S, and you can find all of her writing at Allison Gross. Dot com. You write about the process by which homes in Detroit became abandoned, how they stay abandoned, and their impact on the neighborhood and the city at large. You uh, start with one address where you describe the, how, the home's history from being a well-maintained home and within only four years it being abandoned. The grass, quote, the grass stopped being mowed. Trash and discarded personal belongings started to stack up out front. Pipes, the garage door, and a wrought iron gate were scrapped. You add, it's easy to write off such conditions as a thing of Detroit's past a so-called pre-Renaissance problem, the aftermath of Detroit's economic downturn, a byproduct of middle-class flight from the city, disinvestment, and the subprime mortgage crisis. But, again, this isn't a story from the 60s or 70s white flight, or from the decades of decline in the 80s, 90s, or even the 2008 housing bubble bursting, the story of the first home uh, that you focus on uh, that deteriorates over four years of abandonment begins in 2014 during the second and final year of Detroit's bankruptcy, which began in uh, July 18, 2013, and in December 11, 2014. Is this process of investment and abandonment related in any way to Detroit's bankruptcy? Because I'm trying to figure out why this happened when it did. 
Right. So actually, the the home Kentfield that I focused on. So I, I tracked the chain of title for twenty three Detroit homes that were lost to tax foreclosure, and subsequently they were auctioned in the annual Wayne County tax auction. So Kentfield, um, it was uh, auctioned in two thousand twelve. The twenty three homes, uh, twenty were auctioned in two thousand twelve, and three in twenty thirteen. Um, and they were all sold to speculators, and they were sold multiple times over the past five years to so everywhere from California, Illinois, to Il- England. Um, and using Google Street View images, I was able to look at the homes um, in 2011, so right before they were auctioned. And then I visited each one this past spring. And so while 70% of the homes appeared to be occupied in 2011, so right before they were lost, were vacant, demolished, or burned down when I visited this spring. Uh, So notably, of the 23 properties, uh, 60% of them um, actually ended up back in the Wayne County tax auction in 2016, which means none of the speculators ever paid taxes on the properties themselves, because in Detroit or in Michigan, homes are foreclosed after three years of delinquent property taxes. So tax auction, which was intended to spark new ownership and therefore usage of abandoned space and kind of recoup funds, one could argue that this isn't happening. So as it relates to bankruptcy, I'm not exactly sure if it directly correlates, but I think that one could argue people talk right now, and I think you were hitting on this with the with the quote you kind of picked out, is people talk about Detroit post-bankruptcy as really having rebounded. Um, I moved to Detroit in 2010, and in the time period that I've been there, a lot of development has occurred. You know, we came out of bankruptcy, and people talk about it being in a renaissance right now. But I think that you could argue, specifically looking at this project as I was driving around and looking at each of these homes, um, this isn't a. This is a very recent problem. It all. It's happened in the past five years. In the amount of time that I've been in Detroit, in fact, neighborhoods have actually gotten worse. Uh, these are homes from 2012 and 13 that now um, went from being well taken care of. Again, 78% were occupied in 2011. Um, to today, 78% of them were demolished, vacant, or burned down. So I, I hope that answers your question. No, it does. So if you see Detroit as getting worse, then to you, what explains the more popular media narrative right now? God, I hate that word, narrative. Uh, <laughs> what explains the more the more you know conventional wisdom today that you hear in the media that uh, Detroit is actually on a rebound? Detroit is in a renaissance. If it's getting worse, what explains to you that kind of media coverage? Well, Detroit's a big city, and so there. Uh, sometimes when people talk about Detroit, it's the 7.2 square miles, and that's where a lot of the development is invest, invest, invested. Development is being invested; it's happening. Um, but the city is far bigger, and that's actually a lot of. It's kind of this misnomer about um, the city rebounding that's creating a lot of these problems. And so a lot of the speculators who I wrote about in this piece are under the impression that Detroit's real estate market is hot. And so that's why they're putting down money to buy in neighborhoods, hoping that development is happening. But it's not happening in these further out neighborhoods. And so they're left kind of with properties that don't really have a lot of value. And so they either rent them out in these really predatory schemes or 
they let them just sit. And then they sell them to someone else that they think is going to be um, believing in this kind of narrative of a hot real estate market in the city. Do you, I'm not too sure if you found this out from your uh, research or not. Is this unique to Detroit? Is Detroit some sort of an experiment or laboratory for this kind of investment? Um, I think speculation happens across the country. I, I don't think Detroit's unique in that sense. I think what is unique is the number of properties that are available. Detroit is a poor city and many people with cash flow problems get caught up in the crosshairs of the auction. Um, and so they, and houses end up in the auction. And also the way that the auction is set up, it's online. So uh, I think this year it was a $2,500 deposit that you put down. And if you put that down, you can bid in the auction and you can be anywhere. And so it makes it a lot easier to access properties than perhaps it would be at another in another city um, or at another time period. I'm concerned that this is going to concern to uh, this is this is going to uh, I'm sorry uh, spread to other cities that are fighting against blight and then undermining their own fights again against blight. So, how easy is it to fall into tax foreclosure in Detroit? I remember the story a few years ago about how they were attaching water bills to people's tax bills. So is it more easy in Detroit to fall into tax foreclosure than it is in other cities? Um, yeah, so I've actually, I'm doing another, the auction's happening right now. Um, so it happens every year in September, and that is by law. So I'm doing a lot of reading actually right now for another article about the auction. So it's on my mind right now. So I'm reading about the history of how the auction happened. And it's, it's across Michigan that it's required. Um, so basically, the auction came about in 1999. And the Hudson Institute, which is a free market think tank, it came up with 14 bills for the Michigan legislature, uh, which were the Michigan Urban Homesteading Act. And it was actually, it was inspired by Abraham Lincoln's Homestead Act of 1862, which basically opened government-owned land to small family farmers and heads of households. I, I didn't remember this from my history classes, so maybe you know this already, but heads of households could claim 160 acres of federal land um, if they built property on it, paid a small registration fee, and basically farmed it for five years. In reality, uh, this was really hard to do. They didn't have resources. Many people ended up quitting. The land ended up back in the hands of the government and or in the hands of speculators, which I think is interesting because we're kind of seeing this history repeat itself as what the auction looks like today in Michigan. It was inspired by this uh, 1862 bill. So in Michigan, the idea was appropriated from this. And what the Hudson Institute was trying to do was find a way to get public land back into the hands of private buyers. And so government-owned vacant housing would be transferred to qualifying families with a title transfer after five years. And a lot of the rhetoric had to do with Detroit at the time because there was a lot of foreclosures um, in vacant and abandoned land in Detroit. But an issue with the plan was that many of the houses in the state inventory were basically in disrepair because at the time it took about seven years for an abandoned property to go from the owner to the state. Um, at the time, I think it was like foreclosures happened after five years, and there was no auction. It was a system with liens to recoup back taxes. So there was no real clear title. So 
this process, they kind of realized that um, by the time property got back in the hands of the state, because it was taking seven years, it was often neglected because um, it had been so long and it was irreparable. And it wouldn't really work to be able to give that, these vacant homes, to people for this homesteading act. So instead of trying to refine the act, they came up with a plan to reform the tax reversion law. So this is where they came up with the smaller time frame. So now three years of delinquent taxes um, would get a property to be foreclosed. And instead of the property going to the state, it would go to the county and the public auction was born. Um, so the shorter time frame was supposed to preserve the integrity of the house, make sure homes getting to the local government were in good shape to get back to the private market. Um, the Homesteading Act and the tax reversion law were supposed to go hand in hand hand-in-hand together. They were always tied together. The tax reversion law came up because of the Homesteading Act. Um, But ironically, the Homesteading Act never actually came to be. Uh, Counties could opt into it. There wasn't a lot of funding for it. It No one's done it. But the tax reforms did stick. So what has happened is that people with cash flow problems typically end up getting in the crosshairs of this. Um, So tax Taxes owed typically um, in Detroit to end up in the auction, it's as small as $5,000 to $12,000. And for a while, someone could maybe, because the auction prices were so low, maybe you could buy your home back. Um, I believe that like 30% of homes in the auction early days um, were selling for... Um, yeah, between 2005 and 2015, roughly 30% of all homes purchased at the tax auction were for $500 or less. We're seeing prices starting to rise now because there's this understanding or belief that Detroit is hot. But again, as my article attempted to show, the market's still incredibly dysfunctional. Like some houses can get $500 and then other houses, once kind of in the, not necessarily in the auction, but in selling between private specu- privately between speculators, I was to fetch $51,000. It is incredibly random. It's dysfunctional. It's not based off of um, typical attributes that dictate a market, such as the schools nearby, um, public services, amenities. It's, it's random. It's what you can try to convince someone. It's based off kind of a fable or a myth of what Detroit's value is, um, or it's based off the taxes owed because someone wants to get it off their hands time. That's and the the amazing part about that is the the real disconnect between prices and values. But again, just to sum up kind of what you were saying is that the short term tax bill was an effort to fix problems with the program that wasn't ever fully implemented, it seems like. So this yeah. if if I followed you correctly, going back to the nineteenth century, this system has always been a set up for what is best for private investors and not for the community at large, correct? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you could definitely take that away from it. Okay. Um, I yes, yeah. Uh, so it, uh, you write that Kent Field, the one of the addresses that you talk about in your Detroit Free Press study, uh, this past spring, uh, to better understand uh, property speculation and its impact on Detroit neighborhoods, to come up with a sample group, the Free Press focused on the out-of-state speculator, Los Angeles LLC, Elite Values Property, and tracked the properties in its portfolio. The study revealed a complex system which homes swapped hands in various bundles and newfangled arrangements with the ease and familiarity one normally associates with balancing a checkbook or filling up a tank of gas. 
Is Los Angeles LLC Elite Value Properties, is that the biggest speculator? Are they only one of a few? No. Or is this a situation far bigger than one Los Angeles LLC? Oh, they are one of, I think it was actually, I purposely, so I'm going to tell you the story of how I came across the story because I think it's kind of interesting. Um, but also, I actually am happy. Elite Value Properties is a small fish. Um but I liked the fact that I was focusing on the small fish because I think we often hear in Detroit, if you're reading Detroit papers, you're hearing about the biggest players. Um, but understanding that there are a lot of small people who are just trying to, they they believe the market's hot. It's, it, it almost kind of helped show that no one is truly a winner in this dysfunction. It's really chaotic. But basically, when I started at the Free Press last summer, I was on the breaking news desk. And you do a lot of weather stories, uh, accidents, and just basically a lot of silly viral internet stuff. It's a little depressing. But um, one day in January of last year, I was sent um, a Zillow ad for a house on the east side that was selling for $4,500. And the Zillow ad said, good investment property, squatter may be in the home, but he's friendly. And I was thinking, man, this is bizarre. Um, This isn't a story about a funny Zillow ad. Um, this is a story about a property owner who does or doesn't know if another person is living in the house they're trying to sell. How does that even happen? Um, so I, I wanted to know who owned this house. So I went to the Wayne County Register of Deeds to look up the property's history and try to figure out who owned it, um, what the deal was. And I found out that it was lost to tax foreclosure in 2013 and that Diversified Investment Associates, a company out of Chico, California, Purchased it at the auction for $800. In January 2016, so right before it probably would have gone back to auction if nobody was paying taxes, um, Diversified Investment Associates sold the house to Elite Value Properties for $1,000. That was the owner. So using Nexus, I traced the ownership to Elite and specifically to a man, uh, William J. Whitaker, who was in Los Angeles. Um, He was the current owner. He was the man behind the Zillow ad. Uh, when I, I was able to get his number and I, you know, called him up and initially I was feeling kind of just appalled by the situation. Like, how does this person own this property, not knowing that there's another person in it? Um, but once on the phone with him, I, it really kind of solidified for me how everyone in this scenario was this kind of loser, essentially. Um, so Whitaker explained that he went to this Get Rich Fast property investment conference in Indiana in 2015. And he bought a couple rental properties at the end of the course. He registered an LLC, Elite Value Properties. Then he came back to LA. And when he was home, someone suggested that he invested in Detroit because it was hot. So he linked up with Dennis Elliott, the guy behind Diversified Investment Associates. Um, Elliott is one of those, if you're talking about big fish, small fish, he's one of the top property owners in Detroit, again, based in Chico, California. Um, And Whitaker, he... He purchased 23 houses in the beginning of 2016, uh, 22 from Elliott and then one from another company in Jackson, Wyoming. And he bought them all for just under $1,500. We were on the phone. He's explaining this to me. And he's explaining how at the time he thought this was this great deal. But then he quickly realized essentially his words that they were all shitholes. And so he quickly began to offload them to others who would believe in the myth that Detroit's hot, and he sold it to people in Illinois, England, California. He kept three of them, the ones in the best condition, 
And that included this one that was now in this Zillow ad. So he had kept it for, you know, two more years and then decided that it still wasn't worth it. So he's putting it on the market for $4,500, which interestingly enough was the taxes currently owed on it. So basically he's trying to offload it to at least make some money versus if he sat on it, um, that was the amount owed. It would have gone back to the county because of foreclosure. Um, but when I was talking to Whitaker, I was thinking at the time, I was just going to do this story about this guy in L.A., this, this, the guy who was living in his house that he owned, and kind of trying to make sense of all of this in the auction and how this kind of um, showcased kind of the underbelly of the auction. Because the auction was meant to reactivate abandoned space, and it was meant to recoup funds, and this clearly was showing that wasn't happening. Um, but I kept going back to Glenfield, the house that had the quote-unquote squatter and hoping that this guy would talk to me so I would get his side of the story and kind of have a full-fleshed article. Um, but he wouldn't He wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't answer. I left notes. And so finally I'm thinking, okay, well, Whitaker said he had 22 other houses. Maybe I'll go check out one or two of those and see if maybe there's another story or some thread there. Um, so I started going to the other houses, and I didn't really know what I would find <laughs> But what I ended up finding was there was nothing. There were no people um, because the vast majority of them were vacant. They were burned down. They had been demolished. And it was just kind of this stunning moment when I realized that this is a much bigger story than just this one house and a guy in L.A. in a sweater. But you start digging into the chain of title for all 23 of those houses, these houses, and you actually see this web of speculation and this deterioration and, and how it affects the neighborhood around it. So I don't... I. I don't know if I went on a tangent, but that's basically how the story, how the story came to be. No, that's that's excellent. Uh, how aware are people like Mr. Whitaker, uh, Mr. Whitaker? How aware are those speculators and investors who own the homes, at least on paper, of the home's condition and the impact their investment has had on the neighborhood? I mean, he clearly didn't. He didn't realize. I mean, he didn't know. He, and, but it was a very self-interest. I mean, you know, you can feel bad for the situation just because it felt just the whole thing feels all just kind of pathetic and sad on every level. But it was from a very self-interested, motivated viewpoint that he was speaking about it, where it was that I, you know, thought I was getting this great deal, pennies on the dollar for these homes, but they were, as you said, shitholes. So I couldn't do anything with them. I couldn't rent them out. I couldn't make more money. I couldn't, I mean, he's trying to sell them. I think the, the one that he put on the market, the $4,500 one that started this piece, it ended up selling for $2,500. So he had to reduce the price and he sold it to someone in Arizona. And that, interestingly enough, was one of the better conditioned homes um, because there was a squatter in it. Someone was actually taking care of it versus a lot of the other ones. If there's no one in it, it's going to, over time, deteriorate. So did, um, did you ever find yeah. anybody actually making money off of these investments? Because it seems from what I was reading of your article that that yeah. it never really happens. That's a real shot in the dark. And that would suggest that this market would collapse, that people wouldn't continue to invest in homes and then leave them abandoned, abandoned leading to neighborhood blight. Well, you have these weird um, like outliers. So one of the homes that I focused on, uh, well, I guess books on 23, but one of the homes it had this really weird story where it sold in the end. I, I detailed it in the piece, but it, it had sold for, I think, um, it ended up selling for 
$5,000. So this house sold at the auction um, for $500 in 2012. It then continued to exchange hands and various speculators. Um, Went back to auction because no one paid taxes on it. And it sold again at the auction for $500. And then in November of last year, so a year ago, it randomly sold for $51,000. So I think people hear things like that and they think this might be worth it. I can, I can get that. It's a stable payout that kind of keeps people coming. I think the other aspect, I spoke with um, Josh Akers, who is a geography and urban and regional studies professor at U of M Dearborn. And he kind of explained, it's kind of like musical chairs where someone buys it, buys it, buys a property from the auction. And then they have three years before it ends up in the auction again. Um, so in those three years, they're, everyone is passing it off. They're passing it off person to person, hoping to get more money than what they put into it. And typically, you know, as I said before, in the auction between 2005 and 2015, roughly 30% of all homes purchased were for $500 or less. So you're not putting much in. So you're hoping you can make more. And whoever's then stuck with it at auction time, they lose. But it's often not that big of a deal because all you're losing is that initial purchase price. So again, like $1,000, $2,000. The stakes, they seem really low from an investor or speculator's point of view. But I think that this is inaccurate because the stakes are not low for the people in the neighborhood, for the Detroiters. And I think that was something that I was really important to show in this article because the result is the blight, the blight in the city. We so often think about blight and Acres talks about this as well, but you think of blight as this passive process that just sort of happens from neglect. It's static, but in reality, it's really active and it's the product of people, companies, policies, um, and these speculative investors just quickly engaging in this like capital being swapped and titles being swapped and it's moving really, really, really quickly. Um, and it's not just blight that happens. You know, you have these exploitative rental contracts that people can enter in into. Um, you have neighbors. If, if the rental contract, speculators can typically go through two paths. They might rent it out um, or they're just going to let the house sit there. And so for neighbors, they have to watch the houses around them deteriorate. Or if it gets really bad, which was in one case that I looked at, um, a house will end up being demolished. And in that case, that that cost is shouldered by the general public. So one house I focused on, it sold at the auction in 2012 for just over $1,700, passed off by a series of speculators, deteriorated with each transaction. It ended up back at the auction, of course, (laughs) because no one paid taxes. Nobody bought it. Ended up back in the hands of the city. And in February 2018, it was demolished for just over $18,000. So, I mean, that's, I think, a perfect example of, you know, I'm unclear of what the taxes owed were, but the average is $5,000 to $12,000. And here you have instead the home now having to be demolished for nearly $20,000. That's a public expense. And again, you quote Joshua Akers, Assistant Professor of Geography and Urban and Regional Studies at uh, the University of Michigan, I think it was. I'm not, I can't remember now. University uh, of Michigan-Dearborn, yeah. Yeah, Michigan-Dearborn, that's right. Uh, it, you quote him uh, saying that, uh, let me get to this exactly right, uh, while most people 
like to focus on the visual consequences of a neighborhood's decline, the instigators, speculative investors engaging in a steady and continuous swapping of capital and titles often go under the radar. To what extent are those who live in the neighborhoods uh, scapegoated for a neighborhood's decline caused by outsider investors, poor policy, and unfair law? I would say, but I mean, in, in, in any scenario, who wants to live next door to a blighted, you either have the rental scenario in which there's a lot of instability. Um, people are moving in and out of the properties because what typically happens are these really predatory rent-to-own land contracts that often result in eviction um, because rent-to-own land contracts are not really well-regulated. In Michigan, you don't have to file it with any government office. So the person selling will often put all costs, repairs, maintenances, even taxes on the buyer. Um, so when that happens, if a buyer, you know, misses a payment, they can end up being evicted. Um, and so you have this instability happening that way. Or what's more common is you have speculators just sitting on the property and letting them rot. And so, uh, you know, two examples that I gave in the piece was one that was just kind of heartbreaking was I was talking with this man who's in his, he was 80 and he was sitting on a stoop when I came up to take, I was taking photos of each of the homes to kind of compare with the Google image from 2011. So it's kind of, you would see if the home was in use right before the auction and then see what the scenario was um, in the spring of 2018, which was also just kind of this really crazy reporting process because I had no, it was, it kind of felt like this, you I would write down the list of the chain of title, what kind of had happened to each property. But when I sh- would show up, I would have no clue what I would find. Um, and it, I mean, that was kind of this, Every it was always kind of a surprise, but more often than not, you'd find vacancy or abandonment. But I was talking to um, this man at a house on the east side, and he was explaining that he had bought his house um, several years, decades ago, um, and he was paying off, finishing paying off his mortgage, and he paid about $700 a month. But when he had decided to purchase his house, it was this diverse, really um, vibrant neighborhood, um, densely populated. And here he was, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe a year. I don't know the exact time frame, but soon to paying off and owning this home in full. And what did he have? He was living on a block with, you know, every other house kind of in use. And it, it, the value wasn't there. Um, another home, the one with the, where the property ended up selling for $51,000. Yes, it sold for $51,000. But if you actually looked at the property, it was, had, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, it's like boarded up windows and a boarded up door. It, it looked um, vacant. It was vacant. And so that affects the value of the neighbors around it. Even if it sold for $51,000, no one necessarily, that's not going to necessarily impact the price of a property next to it if it's this blighted kind of eyesore. And the, 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 it was a brother and sister who lived uh, two houses down and the sister now owned the house. It had been passed along to her from her mother. And you have to think of it that way too, that there's like this equity, there's this like ability to pass down um, a home from one generation to the next. But her mother, when she purchased it, the neighborhood looked completely different. Um, and now 
you know, maybe the house sold for $51,000, but that's in the fact, the fact that everyone around it had to deal with this eyesore. So it definitely falls on the shoulders of the neighbors. And uh, I just want to point out to our listeners, there's a lot more to this story. Allie's been uh, continually following up on it. And uh, even in her original piece, she talks about problems with rent to own situations and land contracts. So there's a lot more to this story. You should definitely check out all of Allie's writing at her website, allisongross.com. We have been speaking with reporter Allie Gross, who wrote the investigative piece in the Detroit Free Press, Detroit Real Estate Game Creates Chaos in Neighborhoods. You can follow Allie on Twitter at Allie underscore Elizabeth, and that's Elizabeth with an S. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. How bad is financialization for Detroit? How bad is our current form of capitalism for the city? How much of a threat is the current form of capitalism to Detroit's renaissance? I mean, I... I all you have to do is look at any of these neighborhoods. Nothing. I mean, it's just great. I mean, I don't think Detroit can actually ever rebound um, if this if this process continues the way it is, um, because you know the city, as I just explained before, so much development is happening in these seven point two square miles. But the city is. I think 132 square miles, 136 square miles. It's far, far faster. And when you go to these neighborhoods that have fallen victim to this process, I do not believe that a true equitable renaissance, as they say, could happen in Detroit um, because of this. So I, I would say it's pretty, pretty problematic. I really appreciate you being on the show, Ellie. I'll be following your work at the Free Press, and I hope to have you back on in the future so you can give us an update. Cool. Thank you so much, Chuck. Take care. Appreciate having me. All right. Bye. This is hell, or at least I hope it is, because if it gets worse than this, I'm going to be very, very disappointed. The United States has a long history of disenfranchising black voters during obvious uh, dating obviously to before the civil war but losing the civil war and surrendering to the united states didn't end southern states contempt for the constitution and the idea that all people have the right to vote no matter their race worse yet there's been a comeback of the racially discriminatory voting laws and we'll find out all about it when we have the return of award-winning historian carol anderson author of one person no vote how voter suppression is destroying our democracy Carol was on This Is Hell back in June 2016 to talk with us about her New York Times bestseller, notable book of the year, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, which we selected as one of our favorite books featured on This Is Hell in 2016. Let's get back into some listener feedback. Uh, Guest suggestions keep rolling in, and this one is from Brian, who says, Thanks so much for all your work on the magnificent This Is Hell. I'm going to pitch an interview with a dear friend who recently wrote A Passionate Defense of Our Public Lands, which was published by Temple University Press, and it's called In Defense of Public Lands, The Case Against Privatization and Transfer by Stephen Davis. He's a professor of political science at Edgewood College in Madison, Wisconsin. But he grew up in the Chicago area and is a grad of Loyola University, so many local connections. It's a great book, and he's a terrific conversationalist, so I'd imagine he would be a terrific interview. Here's a link to a review in The Progressive, which is headlined, What's Wrong with Privatizing Public Lands? A New Book Tackles a Grand Canyon-Sized Debate. 
I have an extra copy. If you'd like to have a look, let me know, and I'll drop it off at your headquarters on Devon. Please do, Brian. Again, the address of our world headquarters is 2251 West Devon. We are just above Carrie's Lounge. Thanks for your consideration, a longtime fan. Brian, now this is why we love our listeners. You keep coming up with ideas for interviews, ideas that we haven't come up with, and uh, you don't limit what you want to hear here on This Is Hell to the same old, same old topics and perspectives that you hear on all the other talk radio crap. We cannot stress enough how much this helps with the content of our show, and tune in in the future to hear a lot of these guests here on This Is Hell. A lot of your guest suggestions will be here on This Is Hell in the very near future. Here's an interview that sounds like a real blast. Michelle writes, hey, fellas, at This Is Hell, I have a story idea. As a critical abstraction artist and a recent published author of a radical political manifesto called the Structural Anarchism Manifesto, the logic of structural anarchism versus the logic of capitalism, I thought this topic might be something you would be interested in covering. I imagine radical politics is not something that is outside your wheelhouse, so if this is of your interest, let me know. Here are a few online sites with more info. Cheers, Michel Luc Belmer. Cheers? You want me to read The Structural Anarchism Manifesto, The Logic of Structural Anarchism versus The Logic of Capitalism? And you have the nerve to say cheers? All right, it does sound interesting. Those are topics I'm not well-versed in and I do want to learn about. Besides, we have a soft spot for guests who suggest themselves like Michel Luc Belmer has done here. Michael also sent a guest suggestion and expect a lot of listener-suggested guests over the next several shows because we're really getting a metric ton of great suggestions. Michael writes, Chuck and Alex, I've suggested this guy before but never got a response, so I'll try it again. Good luck. I'm not sure he does interviews, uh, but here's his latest article that I came across. He has several books, and I haven't seen anything recently. I think his critique of big tech and its anti-democratic character are compelling. I know you have had other guests address this, but Morozov, oh yeah, I remember this guy, Evgeny Morozov, I believe, and I think I've reached out to him before, has been at uh, this for years, and I'm a fan. I'd love to hear him on your show, or perhaps I just want to thank me on the air and send me some subs advertising stickers. Michael, keeping us in suspense as to who this guest suggestion actually is, then sends a link to an article. There is a left-wing way to challenge big tech for our data. Here it is by Evgeny Morozov at The Guardian, as well as links to lectures and talks done by Evgeny Morozov. Uh, Michael's correct. He has suggested Evgeny in the past, and so have plenty of our other listeners, so we got to reach out to him. As then put him on our potential listener-suggested guest list. Greg sent us a message via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Greg writes, a friend replied to your tweet about wanting someone on to talk about China. Here's a suggestion from a friend. I would begin with a historical overview because understanding the historical background and Chinese worldview is a prerequisite to looking at contemporary China. I took classes from Quang Ching Lu, who was considered the foremost historian of 19th century China. He wrote the foreword to the Cambridge Illustrated History of China, so it's probably a good place to start. Dr. Lu's colleague at Harvard, John King Fairbrank, wrote China, A New History. It's considered authoritative. I actually had to read that book for a China history class. Thanks for the suggestion. Greg. Now all we have to do is to discuss China is to cover its entire history first. Oh, that seems simple enough. 
A listener suggested uh, a guest, a guest we've already had on the show. He writes, Dear Chuck and Alex, I'm a loyal, longtime listener of This Is Hell. By far the best interview show on the air, in my honest opinion. I know you ask readers for ideas, so I'd like to suggest you contact Bruce Levine, psychologist and activist, and also author of a number of books, including Surviving America's Depression Epidemic. Signed, Hugh in Skokie. Well, I replied to Hugh and Bruce and his new book, Resisting Illegitimate Authority, A Thinking Person's Guide uh, to Being an Anti-Authoritarian, to Being an Anti-Authoritarian is, Anti-Authoritarian is going to be featured in the next hour of this week's show. So stay tuned in for that. Let me put an X through there, put a line through there, move this over here. Yeesh. See, I got to change around all my notes because we had a little bit of a schedule change. Coming up on This Is Hell, there's a long history of black voter discrimination in the South and Republican and the Republican Party, and it has been actively and recently been reinvigorated. Discrimination against child care givers in America's privatized daycare industry reveals why the U.S. needs to join the rest of the industrialized world and some of the non-industrialized world in providing universal daycare. Anti-authoritarianism has been not only criminalized, but but pathologized, turned into a disease in the U.S., helping the rise of authoritarianism. And Jeff discovers micro-generations, all that, plus more listener feedback, the question from hell, uh, what Alex has been up to on social media, as well as what's happening on other upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Live from the planet where we know the price of everything And the value of nothing, this is hell. The South never stopped trying to stop having black people voting. They've displayed over 150 years of contempt for the Constitution and the right of African Americans to vote. The problem is black voter discrimination isn't only for the South anymore. It's gone national with recent rulings on the Voting Rights Act and the elevation of justices to power who are opposed to voting rights. Here to help us understand how blatant racial discrimination in voting uh, persists here in the United States, historian Carol Anderson returns to This Is Hell. She is the author of the new book, One Person, No Vote, which has a forward by the U.S. Senator from Illinois, Democrat Dick Durbin. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Carol. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Chuck. It's great having you on the show. Carol was on the show back in June 2016 to talk with us about her New York Times bestseller and notable book of the year, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. White Rage was a National Book Critics Circle Award winner, named Chicago Review of Books Best Nonfiction Book, uh, Boston Globe Best Book of 2016, and we chose it as one of our favorite books to be featured on the show in 2016 as well. The concept of White Rage was that whenever there are any progresses, any progress that's made in black rights, there is a white blowback against those rights. So it's often three steps forward and two steps back. How much do you see white rage happening when it comes to black voter disenfranchisement? Uh, I see white rage all over black voter disfranchisement, because one of the key pieces in white rage is that it's not what we often think of in the United States in terms of rage as in the Klan or um, cross burnings or Charlottesville Charlottesville tiki torches, but rage is uh, the policies, the the legal decisions, um, 
the ways that, that, that laws are drafted and written in these state legislatures that are very cool, very methodical, and very lethal to the basic rights of American citizens, particularly African Americans. Um, and so when you look at voting rights, that is exactly what you see. You're not seeing uh, the Klan there in front of the, the polling stations. But instead, what you're seeing are voter ID laws, closed polling places, um, voter roll purges where people are knocked off the rolls illegally um, and too late to do anything about it before an election. That's what we're seeing. So are less overt acts of racism more, do they have a greater impact than more overt acts of racism? Um, To me, they really do. I mean, the overt pieces... Um, that's like terror, right? It is designed to strike terror um, in a community so that the community becomes paralyzed, it becomes um, afraid to, to, to speak up. This is that smooth, quiet, subtle burn that has the legitimacy of legality wrapped all around it. So it makes it much more difficult to fight, much more difficult to, to point out, um, and therefore much more difficult to take down. Um, think about how, like voter ID, it's based, it's premised on the lie of rampant voter fraud. But it's been said so many times in so many ways by so many respectable people that what we have now is like more than 50% of Americans believe that voter fraud happens at least occasionally. It doesn't. But you then get the, well, how hard is it to have an ID? Again, that kind of reasonableness. I mean, everybody needs to have an ID. You need an ID to, to check out a book from a library. So how hard is it? And what we don't see are the ways that these laws have been crafted and manipulated to only identify certain types of IDs so that it's able to call out an entire swath of people so that politicians are able to choose their electorate instead of having the electorate choose who their representatives will be. Well, let's talk about the media coverage of this for a second, because you start by writing it was a mystery worthy of Raymond Chandler on November 8th, 2016. African-Americans did not show up. It was like a day of absence at the voting booth. Black voter turnout had dropped by 7% overall. Moreover, less than half of Hispanic and Asian-American voters came to the polls. This was without question a sea change. The tide of African-American, Hispanic and Asian voters that had previously carried Barack Obama into the White House and kept him there had uh, now visibly ebbed Journalist Ari Berman, who's been on our show in the past, called it the most underreported story of the 2016 campaign. But it's more than that. The disappearing minority vote voter is the campaign's most misunderstood story. We'll get to the misunderstood part in a moment. But in your opinion, why was it so underreported? And why, why was the low voter turnout among African-Americans so misunderstood? What does it reveal, I guess, more importantly, mm-hmm. about the media? What does it tell you about the media? It, it, it tells me so much. I mean, so one is that I think it was mis, um, not really reported because it didn't have the fire and the, the fireworks. It, you know, uh, media run to the fire, media run to the, the big explosion. This is that quiet, cool burn where you just don't see it. It's happening, but you just don't see it. And so how do you take this simple but complex story and make it visible? 
So that's what I'm I'm doing in this book. But I think that the reason why it was so underreported in terms of of um, low black voter turnout was that there is an assumption that black people just don't vote. Um, and that black people need to be energized by Obama uh, to be able to go out and vote. Um, and that there's this, this, this kind of, of pernicious, you know, it's one of the things that I talked about in White Rage, a pernicious understanding of black pathology that is so devoid from reality, but it's one of those kind of consistent narratives. Um, what do I mean by black pathology? Um, that the problem in the black community is that um, black fathers just abandoned their kids. You know, if they had really strong, stable nuclear family homes, then all of the problems in the black community will be gone. You need that narrative, except that narrative isn't correct. Um, a CDC study, a recent CDC study, showed that black men, regardless of the relationship with the mother, spend more quality time with their children than men of any other race or ethnicity in America. Black pathology. You know, we've got all of these black thugs. That's why we've got them all locked up in prison, because they're criminals, because they're always doing drugs. Actually, no. <laughs> the war on drugs was a war on black people. Black people for, uh, Wisconsin, um, for marijuana do drugs about the same rate as whites. For hard drugs like cocaine, they do drugs le you know, less than whites. But they're overrepresented because they're hyper-policed in the criminal justice system. So that narrative of black pathology carries through into voting. So is seeing blackness as a disease at the heart of racism within white America? It is, yes. It, you know, I, I did a piece um, in The Guardian saying that white supremacy was the most destructive drug in America because it is so powerful and so addictive, it will make folks um, forsake their God. It will make folks forsake their family. It will make folks forsake their country. Um, it will make them just work in an alternate reality where all they need is a hit of white supremacy um, and everything else can go by the wayside. And that's what we're seeing now. So uh, we're seeing how, how being able to talk about um, uh, a Muslim ban, being able to, you know, and, th and this is me talking about Trump giving his base their hit of white supremacy and everything else be damned. So giving them a Muslim ban, giving them family separation at the border, uh, giving them um, um, these these African shit, oh, excuse me, um, <laughs> uh, S-hole countries. Um, all of those things feed that, that, that desire. And so the kinds of structural pieces, such as our right to vote, such as access to health care, um, such as a quality infrastructure piece. All of that goes by the wayside as long as they can get that hit of white supremacy. And anti-blackness is at the core of that. To what degree do you think those who support this kind of voter disenfranchisement realize that, for instance, voter fraud is 
racist? Or do they rationalize it in some other way, like protecting the integrity of the vote and fighting against the th- threat of things like voter fraud and a stolen election? Do you think that they are true believers in voter fraud? Or do you think this is nothing more than rationalization for racism? I think it's, I, I don't even think it's either or. I think it is so um, embedded in the thought process. So, for instance, uh, one of the major cases where the issue of the the language of voter fraud arose was in the 2000 election in St. Louis. And there, uh, the St. Louis Board of Elections had illegally purged almost 50,000 voters off of the rolls and didn't tell the people. So when they showed up to vote, their names aren't registered on any of the rolls, and they're being sent downtown to the Board of Elections, whose records are a hot mess. Hours, it took hours and hours and hours to get the thing almost kind of sort of figured out. By that time, the polls are getting ready to close. And so the Democrats sue and get the courts to keep the polls open for three additional hours. The Republicans came in immediately and got a higher court ruling to shut down the polls, and, and the polls shut down at 745. What the Republicans said was that this was a case of a shocking, a brazen case of attempted voter fraud on a massive scale. And so what they're doing is they're identifying basically the city, St. Louis, as a site of massive rampant criminality. What we know in America is that blackness has been linked with criminality psychologically. You know, you say, oh, those urban areas, or you say, oh, Chicago, and that becomes the, the, the psychological link of criminality there. And so saying that there are, there's voter fraud, they're stealing elections. That's what Trump was saying about Philadelphia. That's what Kit Bond in Missouri was saying about St. Louis. It becomes that's what Judge Roy Moore was saying about Birmingham. So it becomes part of a rationale that they fully, firmly believe. So considering the state of voter discrimination and disenfranchisement today, how certain is the democratic sh- or the demographic shift that Democrats were depending upon for future electoral success? And more importantly, do you think the only way the Republicans can have any future electoral success over the Democrats using their current Republican policies, platforms, and politics is by disenfranchising those they predict will not support them in the voting booth? Oh, absolutely. Um, so one of the things, one of the key lessons that the Republicans learned in that 2000 election was that demographics are not destiny. So the demographic shifts that are happening in America do not preordain the destiny of political power. And and we know this because, let's face it, we've had an apartheid regime in South Africa. We had a similar type of regime in the Jim Crow South, where what you learn is that you suppress voters whose policies that are absolutely, A, repugnant to them, and also um, antagonistic towards them. You repress their votes, and then you only have to be responsive to a small strata of your voters. And as long as you're meeting that small strata's needs, you're fine, politically fine. 
Um, and that's what they learned in, in 2000. They learned that in Florida with the suppression of uh, black voters and the suppression of Hispanic voters. And they learned that in St. Louis uh, with the suppression of black voters as well. And it really came to the fore after the election of Barack Obama. So, you know, one of the, the things we often hear is, well, how racist can America be? We elected a black man twice to the White House. And that's the kind of congratulatory pat on the back. And that we is often constructed as we white Americans elected Barack Obama twice. But that's not accurate. Not since 1964, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, signed by Democrat Lyndon Baines Johnson, have the majority of whites voted for a Democratic uh, presidential candidate. Not since 1964. The same happened in 2008. The majority of whites did not vote for Barack Obama. What happened was that he had an incredible grassroots organizing ground game. And they brought 15 million new voters to the ballot box, to the polls. And those voters were overwhelmingly black, Latino, Asian, young, and poor. Republicans saw that and said, that's the group we have to knock out. We've got to diminish their voting power. And when you look at the range of voter suppression techniques that have been put in place by these Republican regimes, those are the groups that are targeted. And so you can not, if you knock those groups out, that small band of whites are able to maintain political power at the complete destruction, you know, the at the at the peril of American democracy and the viability of this nation and the viability of its people. You know, and, and I started thinking about, you know, is today's discrimination that we're seeing from the Republican Party, from conservatives, uh, discrimination against African-Americans voting rights, is that still about, you know, racial discrimination or is it simply a Republican strategy to win politically that happens to be racially discriminatory? And then I started asking myself, what difference does it make? So, so, so I guess, the, can you answer those two questions? Is this more about Republican strategy, and does that make any difference? Well, you know, see, and, you know, and uh, in Wisconsin, Wisconsin had a, has a, an extreme gerrymandered uh, system um, that really diminishes the voices and the votes and the influence of uh, those, like in, in Milwaukee, African Americans in Milwaukee. Um, and what Wisconsin argued was that this wasn't racially focused or determined at all. It's just that they happen to be Democrats. <laughs> and, and so we just happen to try to create more power for the Republicans. This is partisan. This isn't racial. But because the way that the Republican Party has evolved or devolved over time, particularly um, after the Southern strategy in 1968, where the Republicans wooed in and brought in that toxin of white supremacy in, via the Southern Democrats, because the Southern Democrats were just like, oh, we can't be in this Democratic Party anymore. I mean, they're talking about civil rights and that people are equal. I mean, what kind of mess is that? And the Republicans are like, come to us. We want you. And so the Southern Democrats moved over into the Republican Party, and the conservatives in the Republican Party thought that they could handle it, 
thought that they could use the the votes um, in Congress, thought that they could use the 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 voting power in the various southern states in order to put through their traditional conservative agenda. Well, what happened is that that toxin of white supremacy began to take over in the Republican Party, and the party moved further and further and further to the right, to the point where, I mean, you think about that 2016 election, you had 16 um, Republican candidates vying for the presidency, many of whom had governmental experience, senators, governors. um, But Donald Trump was chosen because what he offered was pure, uncut, USDA grade A prime beef racism in terms of white supremacy. Mexicans are rapists. Blacks live in hell holes. Those sorts of things. Um, And and it's that move to the right that has created a Republican Party now that is almost 90% white, whereas the Democratic Party is a little over 50-some percent white. You have a much broader range of demographics in the Democratic Party. The Republicans' policies are absolutely repugnant to the broad swath of Americans, to the, the diversity of Americans. So how are you going to stay in power? Because those, those policies have such a, a, a stark racial and racialized and racist agenda. And you do it by voter suppression. So it's, it's trying to, at, at, at this point in our history, partisan and racial are synonymous when it comes to the Republican Party. And that's unfortunate. And you were talking about Lyndon Johnson and finally uh, vote, or signing into law and uh, creating in 1957 the original Civil Rights Act, and then that clearly fell short when it came to voting rights for African Americans and eventually putting into law the, Civil, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And you were just talking about how that changed the Republican Democratic Party setup in the South, how all of a sudden all the white Democrats who were incredibly racist turned into white Republicans who were still incredibly racist. Yeah. And, but you point that the reason that this all changed, all this change all happened within the Democratic Party is that you write, starting in 1947, the United States found itself in a pitched battle for global leadership against the Soviet Union. The Cold War also weaponized culture and propaganda. The Soviet Union prided itself on meeting the uh, basic material needs, housing, employment, health care of its people. There was, of course, a steep price to be paid in terms of individual freedom and liberty. The Soviet weaknesses, therefore, played directly into the American strengths, democracy. But given Jim Crow, those vaunted democratic ideals turned out out to be the U.S. The U.S.'s Achilles heel as well, a fundamental hypocrisy the Soviets set out to exploit at every turn, and this caused a divide between the United States and their Western allies. So can we credit the Cold War? Can we credit the threat of communism for the United States to at least concede to the liberal reforms of the civil rights era? Because We've had people on the show, like recently Kahinde Andrew, who uh, he's the person who started the very first black studies uh, department in Europe. And he argues that radicalism is good for liberal reforms because they motivate conservatives to concede to less uh, liberal reforms than those uh, being demanded by radicals. So can we credit the Cold War and the Soviet Union for bringing about the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965? Kind of, sort of. It's part of a larger context. Um, 
And so let me back up and talk about my first book, because I think that'll help us get to, to this answer. My first book was called Eyes Off the Prize, The United Nations and the African-American Struggle for Human Rights. And there I argue that in the 1940s, African-Americans, um, particularly like the NAACP, recognized that black equality was going to require more than civil rights. It was going to require human rights. Civil rights are what we think of as our Bill of Rights, the right to vote, the, the right to a fair and speedy trial, etc. Human rights begin to encompass not only civil rights, but the right to housing, the right to health care, the right to education, um, those sorts of rights. And they recognized that hundreds of years of slavery and Jim Crow had done enormous damage to the human rights of African Americans, and they waded into that battle. And they waded into to, to where the NAACP was on the consultant uh, list for the State Department at the UN meeting, and they pushed through part of the language that dealt with human rights and that you would protect human rights on a, um, from racial discrimination. But when the Cold War began, and as the NAACP is fighting for this human rights platform, it allowed the Southern Democrats to begin to identify the right to health care, the right to education, the right to housing as Soviet communistic rights. And how could any American, in fact, champion what the Soviet Union, those communists, are championing? And the NAACP started taking all kinds of blows um, for championing human rights to the point where they eventually backed off and believed that they could achieve uh, black equality through a civil rights platform instead of a human rights platform. And so you get this really weird piece where, on one hand, there is movement forward because of the kinds of international pressure pointing out what uh, Wendell Wilkie talked about, the mocking paradoxes of America. On the other hand, the kind of entrenched uh, racism and the entrenched, uh, I can call it radical conservatism, the reactionaries, are able to then identify America an American and patriotism in such a narrowed band that what it takes in order to have a truly vibrant, inclusive democracy gets pushed off the table because of that language. To what extent is the Democratic Party then pointing to voter disenfranchisement for their loss in the presidential election in 2016? And what do you think played a bigger role in Hillary Clinton's loss, voter disenfranchisement or the Russians? You know, I, did, I don't see the... I haven't seen the Democratic Party in toto going after voter suppression with the kind of um, intentionality that it needs to have. What I do see the... No, what I do see is civil society Really, civil society, the NAACP, the LDF, the ACLU, vote writers, let America vote, those organizations, uh, the Lawyers Committee, 
pushing hard to um, break down um, all of these voter suppression laws and to provide access and an ability for people to be able to register to vote and then get out to vote. And I believe that, and, I, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing uh, Reverend William Barber now, that America's democracy was hacked by voter suppression long before the Russians got there. It is like the, Rus- the, um, the Republicans just pu- painted a bullseye on the weaknesses in uh, the American system and then just pointed to the Russians and said, hit here, because that's what happened. I mean, the, it's fairly clear that there was an active uh, social media campaign by the Russians that played to the, the disenchantment within um, major sectors of the African-American community about how futile uh, the political system is and how unresponsive it is. Um, it is clear as well that the Russians were also targeting um, the Republican state, uh, strongholds and saying, we've got rampant voter fraud happening in North Carolina. We've got to shut this down. So, but all of that is the playbook of voter suppression that had been laid out long before the Russians hit. You write how the devices the Republicans used to discriminate at the voting booth, quote, target the socioeconomic characteristics of a people. Poverty, lack of mobility, illiteracy, etc. How much does the targeting of socioeconomic characteristics of poverty, lack of mobility, illiteracy, etc., not only reveal a discriminatory policy toward African Americans and people of color in general, but also a discriminatory policy when it, that suppresses the vote of the poor? To what extent yeah. is this not only race discrimination, but yeah. voter suppression based on class? Because, and yeah. I know that you heard this, Carol, and I know that it's an inaccurate statement, but so many people in the media were saying that the reason that Trump won was because of poor whites. That doesn't, that it's not eventually uh, doesn't prove out, prove to be true. But if that is the case, then why don't we see that same kind of discrimination at the voting booth for poor white people? And you know, and the thing is, is that we do so. And let me so let me go back to the Mississippi Plan of 1890, which first laid out how to disfranchise all of these black voters. Um, and so there was the poll tax, the literacy test, etc. But also in there, the politicians were also clear they didn't want all of those poor whites voting either. You know, and they believed they really wanted to go back to that moment where you as white property males were the only ones who really had the right to vote um, because they were seen as being the, um, the leaders, the most responsible, the most whatever, qualified. And, and so one of the politicians said, you know, we got to get rid of the vicious whites, too. And they did. The overall voting uh, turnout rate and the overall registered voter rate in the South plummeted overall, blacks and whites, after the passage of the Mississippi plan, because the Mississippi plan then spread throughout the South. When we look at, um, for instance, issues of voter ID or the closures of, of polling places, when you close a polling place, you increase, and, and they do it under the ruse of um, 
fiscal responsibility. We've got a budgetary crisis. We can't have all of these polling places open. We need to close some to consolidate. And it sounds like being, you know, fiscally responsible management, administration. But what that does is it increases the distance that people have to go to vote significantly. If you are poor, your access to transportation is not as strong as others who are not poor. Your ability to have a car, because cars are expensive. You've got the note. You've got the insurance. You've got the maintenance. You've got the gas. Cars are expensive. And in many of these areas, then, they don't have viable public transportation. So how do you get to the polling place after it has been moved miles away from where you are? Poor whites live in those areas, too. These, these policies are targeted. When it comes to um, voter ID, and in many ways, the, the holy grail for voter ID is the driver's license. In order to get a driver's license, and again, you know, we've talked about if you're poor, you don't have a car, so there's no reason for you to have a driver's license. So now you got to get one or a state ID, same thing. But you need a birth certificate. If you are poor and you're like over 50, you probably weren't born in a hospital. You were born by, at home or by a midwife at home. That means you don't have a birth certificate issued by a hospital. Without that birth certificate, it's really hard to get that ID. In order to get a birth certificate, it can cost hundreds of dollars. And if you're poor, having hundreds of dollars to get the birth certificate, to get the ID so that you can vote, automatically cancels you out. This has both race and class embedded in it. That's why voter suppression is so dangerous in America. And you point out how voter ID in the past, when it was being given to African-Americans in the post-Reconstruction South, uh, it ended up being a card to be criminalized, an action to be criminalized. So is there a legacy in the American South of a fear of things like voter ID because the way that those types of identification have been persecuted in the South? You know, I, I think that the, the fear is um, I, I would say that the fear is even more widespread, um, and I, I know I know how to how to frame this. So, one of the things in the South we know about the criminalization of blackness uh, coming out of the Civil War, um, and Doug Blackman and David Oshinsky do a beautiful job of writing about this, like the convict lease labor system and the rise of Parchman Prison, uh, which was basically a plantation in Mississippi. That criminalization of blackness where there are certain crimes that are that basically only African Americans are arrested for. Um, then meant as well that when they started to put uh, voter registration where you had to go register at the sheriff's office. I, given the criminalization of blackness, you're not stepping foot in the sheriff's office to go register to vote. Um, because you could easily be arrested for vagrancy and then hauled off and put into that criminal justice system, put into the convict lease labor system. You're, n you're not doing that. 
And so when we think about the 2000 election in Jacksonville, where they had police stationed at the main road going into one of the larger um, polling places in the city where African-Americans were going in, and and they were setting up a a police checkpoint going into – folks were like, I'm not doing that. I'm not dealing with the cops, and we know the 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 history, the legacy, and the ongoing concerns about African Americans and law enforcement. Now, think about as well in Texas, where they have begun questioning the citizenship of Hispanic Americans. And even when they have passports, U.S. passports, and they've got um, Texas birth certificates going, nah, you were delivered by this midwife. Um, we know that there were some cases where, you know, she, it was fraudulent, so you're not an American. They're pulling the uh, passports they're pu- and, and putting these folks in deportation centers. And they're doing this in areas that have, along the border that have large Hispanic, you know, where the counties have a large, a sizable Hispanic uh, population. Think about the kinds of fear that that brings in that community about wanting to get anywhere near any kind of official entity because you can have all of the paperwork that you, you can muster that, look, I'm a U.S. citizen. And all they, can, all they have to do is say, no, it's, it's birtherism at another level. Think about what happened in North Carolina, where the DOJ, Jeff Sessions, DOJ, and ICE requested from North Carolina all of the voting records from 44 counties in North Carolina. Now, if you're in North Carolina and you know that ICE has just asked for voting records, you're not getting anywhere near the voting booth because ICE has shown its ability to be absolutely ruthless in going after people um, who, even when they are supposed to be here, <laughs> let's be really clear, they have shown a ruthlessness that just means I'm not dealing with that. I don't need to upset my entire life. That's what this is designed to do is you, you, you send the, the signal of fear through a community so that they stay away from the ballot box. When I was reading your book, I kept thinking about how black voter suppression has been at the it has been a cancer at the heart of American democracy since American uh, since the United States began in 1787 or 1776, wherever you want to put it, and then uh, since uh, the Civil War and post-Reconstruction, that this seems to be the thing that is making the United States democracy so vulnerable and has had such an impact on the history of American democracy and where we are today. For instance, you talk about uh, literacy tests being used in the past uh, to keep uh, black voters from the polls. Did political discrimination based on race lead to a motivation for or reinforcement of racial discrimination in education too, is a legacy of poor education outcomes for African Americans in the United States, a legacy of voter suppression? I would, I would say that it was one of them. 
um, in that um, the 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 denial of education, of course, began long before the battle for the right to vote for African Americans. But when we get to the Mississippi Plan of 1890, you know, they're looking up and they're going, oh, my God, there's this thing called the 15th Amendment that says we can't discriminate on um, on the right to vote via by racial discrimination. Okay, fine. So how do we say we don't want black people to vote without writing a law saying we don't want black people to vote? And so they began to look at those kind of societally imposed characteristics, um, such as illiteracy, um, the lack of education, um, such as poverty. Um, and so with the, the literacy test, so for instance, um, by the time we get to the 1940s, the differential in funding between black schools and white schools is 252%. That's the average, a 252% differential. In Mississippi, it was 751%. And for black schools, um, there often weren't high schools. Those high schools, many of those high schools didn't start getting built until the 1950s when the states were concerned that Brown might overturn Jim Crow education. So the 1950s or the late 1940s. So what we have then is this kind of societally imposed, massively underfunded and undereducated uh, black population. And then using the literacy test, and the literacy test, to be clear, is not see, dick, run, run, dick, run. Ooh, look at Puff and Jane a spot. It is having, requiring people to read a large section of the Constitution, either the state Constitution or the U.S. Constitution, and then interpret that to the uh, liking of the registrar. Now, if you've got less in, in, in the deep south states, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Georgia, over 50%, by the time we're in the 1940s, over 50% of the, the adult black population in those states had less than five years of Jim Crow education. So putting... Um, a large section of the Constitution in front of them saying, read it, and then interpret it as if you were a Supreme Court justice. That's setting people up to fail. You mentioned how the uh, process of voter disenfranchisement, voter suppression of the African-American community has had an effect on the relationship between African-Americans and law enforcement. You touched on that earlier. Uh, but you also, uh, in your book, you write about, uh, you know, the 1950, up until the 1950s, the post-Reconstruction South's poll tax, which criminalized the ma- vast majority of African-Americans through the non-payment of that poll tax. Can the process of voter disenfranchisement, can that be blamed for what we are seeing today with the problem of mass incarceration? Is mass incarceration an outcome of attempts at black voter suppression? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, one of the things that we see, for instance, is that with the rise of Jim Crow in the 1890s, um, the southern states began to figure out again how to disfranchise um, black people who now, particularly black men at that time, because we didn't have the 19th Amendment, how to disfranchise black men. 
who had the 15th Amendment, who said, which said they had the right to vote. And the way to do that was through felony disfranchisement. You know, I, as I talked about that criminalization of blackness um, that began um, during Reconstruction and then just carried on through. Alabama, for instance, in its 1901 constitution, its Jim Crow constitution, um, had a language in there about moral turpitude. If you have been convicted of a crime of moral turpitude, you have lost your right to vote. Now, Alabama didn't define moral turpitude. What exactly is moral turpitude? Well, it was a way to use the criminal justice system to legally deny the right to vote to American citizens. And Alabama refused to define moral turpitude. Wow, for over a century. It was only in 2017, the spring of 2017, that the state passed legislation where it finally defined moral turpitude, and that is because you had civil society, the NAACP, the ACLU, the LDF, pounding um, in the courts and pounding on Alabama through suit, lawsuit after lawsuit to, to define moral turpitude. And in 2017, they defined it. Um, rape, treason, murder, the big crimes. But drug offenses were not there. And we know what the war on drugs has, has done to uh, felony disfranchisement, for felony disfranchisement. And by the time Alabama defined what moral turpitude was, 8% of the state's adult population was disfranchised. 15% of the state's black population, black adult population, was disfranchised because of moral turpitude. When we look at Florida, with over 6 million, nationwide over 6 million people are disfranchised because of felony disfranchisement, 6 million. In Florida, uh, Florida has over, I think it's like 1.6 million of those. Um, and 40% of black adult men are disfranchised in Florida because of felony disfranchisement. Over 20% of all black adults in Florida are disfranchised because of felony disfranchisement. And what that means then is that Florida is able to count all of those heads in the census when apportionment is happening for how many um, um, Congress people you're going to have, how many representatives in the U.S. House you're going to have. But those folks don't have the right to vote. It's like the three-fifths rule sitting here in the 21st century. Carol, this is yet another amazing book. I'm so glad we're having you back on the show. In 2013, because a lot of people were asking me when I was telling them that I was going to have you back on the show, they were asking me, uh, well, what happened? What changed? Why are the sudden are we seeing so much voter uh, suppression today? In 2013, the Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four on the case Shelby County versus Holder, which ruled Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was unconstitutional. Section 4B contains the coverage formula that determines which jurisdictions 
are subjected to preclearance based on their histories of discrimination in voting. That preclearance is related to the targeting of certain states that have had a history of electoral discrimination and oversaw changes to their voting laws to make practice, make sure practices do not deny or abridge their right to uh, right to vote on account of race, color, or membership in a language minority group before those changes may be enforced. Now, immediately afterwards, Alabama, Arizona, North Carolina, Ohio, Texas, and Wisconsin make changes to their voting laws their critics see as discriminatory and would have been stopped by those pre-clearance requirements that used to be in the Voting Rights Act that were determined unconstitutional. Is the 2000 overturning of preclearance of Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act the reason we have Donald Trump as president? Absolutely. Without question. Um, That ruling um, in that 5-4 decision uh, where John Roberts said, you know, basically that racism is no longer the force that it had been in the U.S., uh, when the Voting Rights Act was necessary, you know, racism has abated. Um, sure, there are little pop-ups here and there, but nothing of the magnitude that we saw back in the 60s. Um, he said that the Voting Rights Act was uh, basically calcified, um, that it was stagnant because only a few, 17 districts, have been bailed out of coverage. So it shows that the thing really isn't working. Um, and, and, and all of these rationales that were um, devoid of logic and devoid of evidence in that 5-4 decision, that just unleashed this, this powerful force in American society that went after how do we shut down you know, so let's talk about Alabama. I'll start with Alabama. Alabama in 2011, so before the Shelby County decision, had passed a voter ID law. Prior to that, the Republicans are actually recorded as saying, how do we depress the black voter turnout? Because all of these illiterates and these aborigines will get on these HUD finance buses and go to the polls. Now, Alabama knew that there was no way that they could get that law through a Department of Justice preclearance review. So they sat on the law. Shortly after the Shelby County v. Holder decision, Alabama implemented that law. And in implementing that law, uh, which makes basically the... um, the driver's license, the, the, the ticket to ride into the voting booth. Then the governor shut down the uh, Bureau of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties. So if you need a driver's license, but there aren't driver's license bureaus in your county, this is how this thing works. In Wisconsin, uh, Governor Scott Walker um, targeted both Milwaukee and Madison because students, remember, the youth, students are a part of the coalition that put Obama into power. And so one of the things that they did there was to remove the voting booths off of the university campuses and put them downtown. And so if you're voting on a Tuesday, most students take their classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you're voting on a Tuesday, then you're trying to manage how to get off campus, 
downtown during the the, the school day um, to be able to vote and then get back to campus so that you're not late for class. Whereas when the polling places were on the campus, you could, boom, pop in, go vote, and go to class. In Milwaukee, shutting down the Department of Motor Vehicles, constricting their hours, then providing all kinds of confusion about what kinds of documents you needed, what kinds of IDs were, were necessary to vote, all having confusion reign. So what we saw in Wisconsin was that in 2016, there were 60,000 fewer votes counted, 60,000 fewer voters in 2016 than there was in 2012. 68% of that decline happened in Milwaukee alone. And Milwaukee is where 70% of the state's black population lives. Trump took the Electoral College um, delegates from Wisconsin by a little over 20,000 votes. Voter suppression matters. In North Carolina, North Carolina not only purged 600,000 voters off of the rolls, North Carolina also reduced early um, voting hours, shut down a number of polling stations um, so that African Americans would have to go further to vote, but did not shut down the polling stations so that whites would have to travel further. In terms of shutting down early voting, which African Americans use disproportionately because it provides leeway for working class folks to actually um, vote where, so that they don't have to take time off on that Tuesday, a work day. North Carolina Republicans were celebrating and congratulating themselves on the decline from 2012 to 2016 that African-American voter turnout during early voting had declined by 8.5%. So, yes, voter suppression put Donald Trump in the White House. And we need to be clear about what that means. Um, as we look at a series of policies emanating out of that regime that are absolutely antithetical to the well-being of the vast majority of Americans, as we look at these horrific immigrants, policies, as we look at the horrific criminal justice policies, as we look at the horrific tax policies, as we look at the horrific health care policies, the horrific education policies, voter suppression put a regime in power that has set out to undercut, undermine, and destroy so much of the livelihood, the, the viability of most people living in this nation. And to me, it seems to have had, as you point out in your, in your book, a huge impact on the thinking, the ideology, the beliefs of the Republican Party and the way that it acts. For instance, you point out that states' rights is at, at, at its very heart is voter suppression. You point out that the fear of big government is at its very heart about uh, African-American voter suppression, about how the uh, conservative uh, idea of uh, white victimization is at the very heart of uh, African-American uh, voter suppression. All of these ideas that are being embraced by conservatism all seem to start with 
black voter suppression. And it's such a disturbing thing because it just after I read your book, I realize that that seems to be what the Republican Party and what conservatism is all about today, about being racist towards black people who are trying to vote. And that leads to my final question for you, Carol. We have been speaking with historian Carol Anderson, author of the new book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Carol was on the show back in June 2016 when we talked to her about her book, White Rage, which we chose as one of our favorite books to be featured on our show in 2016. This month, Carol also released a young adult adaptation of White Rage, called We Are Not Yet Equal, Understanding Our Racial Divide, which you wrote with children's literature writer Tanya Bolden. One last question for you, Carol. And as we do with every one of our guests, our final question for you is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write... Uh, Elements that laid the groundwork for gutting the Voting Voting Rights Act was the ease with which the U.S. Supreme Court overturned a federal election, ignoring blatant violations of the 15th Amendment and swaddling it all in the language of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. It demonstrated how far the court's slim majority would go to create a political outcome despite all the evidence. This happened in 2000, of course, when the presidency hung by a chad. How did Bush v. Gord, Gore lead to a threat to the Voting Rights Act and voting rights for blacks, as well as the Trump presidency? So in that um, election in 2000, one is that you saw uh, Florida target black and Hispanic voters for purges, for intimidation at the polls, for machines not working, for long lines, all of those things to demoralize and depress black and Hispanic voters. The Supreme Court ignored all of that. Ignored all of it. You saw as well, even with all of that um, disfranchisement activity, that when they started doing the hand recount, because you couldn't figure it out via the machines, uh, when they started doing the hand recount, that Gore was, in fact, closing the gap on George W. Bush, closing the gap to within 137 votes. And, the, and this was just the, 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 the um, initial recount. It was at that moment that the Supreme Court stepped in and said, stop it. So that ignoring of mass voter suppression against uh, language minorities and against African Americans, boom, it was crystal clear. Um, the, the shenanigans that were going on um, in terms of the recount, um, also crystal clear. The Supreme Court basically ignored evidence in order to get the political outcome that that five-member majority wanted. And when you begin to think about that was the same kind of pretext that was used to gut the Voting Rights Act. So when John Roberts says that racism really isn't a factor in American society anymore, and then he has to ignore that in the 2006 reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, they had already found over 700 instances where the Department of Justice had stopped states and jurisdictions from implementing voting changes because they were racially discriminatory. That 
that gutting of the Voting Rights Act, that ignoring of the evidence, crystal clear evidence that the states were trying to suppress and were only stopped by the DOJ, led us to then having states like Texas, North Carolina, Ohio, Wisconsin, Georgia, Alabama, Pennsylvania, implementing these voter suppression laws that threw the election to Donald Trump and that threw... um, and that through the election to someone who is as tainted and unqualified and unfit to be president of the United States. Carol, it is truly a pleasure having you back on the show. And I'm going to want to have you back on sooner rather than later. Uh, so Good. the next time you have any writing out, you know I'll be bugging you. You are quickly becoming one of my very favorite guests. Thank you so much for being on our show again. Thank you so much, Chuck. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. That's historian Carol Anderson, author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Listeners who have met me say I'm not as fat as I sound. This is hell. Let's go to the update booth with Alex to find out what he's been doing on social media. What's up, Alex? This week on social media, I posted actually a really good piece uh, from uh, WSWS.org called... The CIA Democrats, which is this giant three-part series on how all of the new Democrats that are running in this election uh, are all like deep state CIA and military people. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's it's really, really bad. Um, also, I posted, uh, I don't know if you know about Real Life Magazine. Um, it's, a mag- it's a new online publication. It's about living and technology and sort of how technology changes how we live. And I posted a really great piece called The Constant Consumer, which is all about... Amazon just reshaping the way consumerism exists and to turning it into this, turning sort of our world into just an Amazon store. Uh, That's really interesting. I really recommend uh, that piece a ton. And then people got mad when I posted that thing about uh, scientists giving MDMA to octopus <laughs> octopi. Wait, you know what? Now that I'm looking at the headline, it said scientists gave MDMA to octopuses. Right. That's not. It's octopi. No, it's right? not correct at all oh, whatsoever. A lot of people are really upset about that. Shame story. on you. I'm, I'm now. I have another thing to be mad about. Shame <laughs> on you, Gizmodo. All right, let's go back into some listener feedback before we get to our next <laughs> guest. Uh, this uh, George writes us to say hi, Chuck. If you have not already done so, I suggest that you interview Tracy Cisco of the Chicago Justice Project. See ChicagoJustice.org. Even if he has been on the program, why not have him on again? And how can I contribute to this as hell without using my credit card? Maybe I can send a check. I am not eager for Vladimir Putin and everyone else to know where my money goes. I look forward to hearing from you. Keep up the good work. George in Acton, Massachusetts. George, you can always, anyone at any time actually, can send us a check to This Is Hell. 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And if you can make it out to me, Chuck Mertz, or you can make it out to Not the Media, because it's fun to write Not the Media, wherein you are uh, writing out a check. And we are part of the burgeoning Not the Media broadcasting and podcasting network that includes This Is Hell and absolutely nobody else. So send a check to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659, and make it out to Not the Media or Chuck Mertz or cash for all i care okay maybe not cash because if that gets lost in the mail anybody named cash can cash it and you'd be surprised how many people are actually apparently named cash that's this is hell 2251 west devon second floor chicago illinois 60659 make it out to not the media chuck mertz probably not cash 
Our bank will take, uh, even if you put it into This Is Hell, they'll probably take that too. John Duffy has a suggestion, and it's John Duffy. I love when guests suggest, or listeners suggest themselves. Chuck, my name is John Duffy, and I'm one of the authors of the forthcoming book, The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, which is due out on August 28th. See, some of these emails are really old. Myself and my co-author, Ray, just did an interview with Robbie Martin for his and his sister, Abby's podcast, Media Roots Radio. Whatever. I thought you would be interested in the content of the book, and if so, that you might be interested in speaking to us on your show. You can find our book at skyhorsepublishing.com. Hmm. Our own webpage will be launching later this week. The book is based on 10 years' worth of interviews with insiders at the FBI, CIA, NSA, White House, and more. It takes a critical look at the pre-9-11 period, the immediate 9-11 aftermath, including torture and domestic spying, and goes on to explore the war on whistleblowers. It's a macro look at the system by which empire functions, where small players can commit big crimes in the name of empire and get away with them, while the failure to hold them accountable leads to larger and larger atrocities. Uh, if this is something you would like to dig into on your show, let me know. Here you can watch an edited interview my co-author and I did with Richard Clark almost 10 years ago now that is very rele- uh, revealing. John then links to the interview with Richard Clark on YouTube. Clark, you may remember, was on This Is Hell in the Past and is the former National Secu- Security Coordinator for Security, Infrastructure, Protection, and Counterterrorism for the United States, a position he held on 9-11. Clark testified to the 9-11 Commission that leading up to and in the wake of the attacks in the World Trade Center and Pentagon, the Bush administration was preoccupied with Iraq and Saddam Hussein. Again, that's from John Duffy, and even guests who suggest themselves will get free subvertising stickers if we have their suggested guest here on This Is Hell. We had the passing of a past guest on This Is Hell as well since we went on summer break and Tom told us about Uri Avneri, uh, Israeli statesman, journalist, war hero, peace activist uh, who died over our vacation in uh, August. So, uh, you know, condolences to Uri Avneri's family. Um, and I think we're going to be posting some Uri Avneri interviews in the future. We may have done that last month. I'm really not too sure. Tom also suggested that we have Neil deGrasse Tyson on the show because he has a new book out called Accessory to War, the Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military, an exploration of the age-old complicity between sky watchers and war fighters. And Tom, I saw that too and was thinking about having Neil deGrasse Tyson on the show until I saw that former CNN CEO and Steve Jobs sycophant Walter Isaacson endorsed the book and that's when I got cold feet coming up on this week's This Is Hell anti-authoritarianism has been not only criminalized but pathologized turning it into a disease in the United States helping the rise of authoritarianism there's a long history of black voter disenfranchisement that we just talked about see I gotta get over these notes being changed around because of the schedule discrimination against child caregivers in America's privatized daycare industry reveals why the U.S. needs to join the rest of the industrialized and some of the non-industrialized world in providing universal daycare and Jeff discovers micro generations that stuff plus more listener feedback question from hell this week's prize is a new completely redesigned This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can get right now by supporting This Is Hell at thisisell.com and clicking on, you guessed it, support. Live from the planet where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing, this is hell. In the U.S., we view anti-authoritarianism as an illness to be treated with drugs, and that's not a good thing. If you want to avoid living in an authoritarian dystopian future, Here to help guide us through authoritarianism and anti-authoritarianism, 
practicing clinical psychologist Bruce E. Levine, author of Resisting Illegitimate Authority, A Thinking Person's Guide to Being an Anti-Authoritarian, Strategies, Tools, and Models. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Bruce. Great to be back on, Chuck. Uh, Bruce has been on the show in the past, including way back, the first time he was on our show was back in 2009, when we spoke with him about his alternate article, Are Americans a Broken People? Why We've Stopped Fighting Back Against the Forces of Oppression. And you can find all of Bruce's writing at brucelevine.net. You write that authoritarianism is routinely defined as relating to or favoring blind submission to authority. In contrast, anti-authoritarians reject for themselves and for others an unquestioning obedience to authority, and they believe in challenging and resisting illegitimate authority. Is acquiescing, then, to any level of authority the endorsement of and support of authoritarianism? And conversely, to be anti-authoritarian, uh, anti-authoritarian, do we need to def- deny all authority? Because I'm trying to figure out if there are degrees within authoritarianism. So what does it mean to be anti-authoritarian? Well, the key phrase is illegitimate authority. Okay, so and there's a big difference between anti-authoritarian versus anti-authority. So, you know, one of the points that Noam Chomsky, the anti-authoritarian anarchist, makes that look, if you're little kids, you know, running across in the middle of the street, and you know, and you want to save them from getting run over by a car, you're acting. I mean, he uses the term authoritarian. You're work, You're acting as an authority, and he, and he, you know, and he says, I think you can justify that authority there. Um, but what he also points out, and what I totally agree with, and what a lot of books about, is most a lot of authorities out there are just there are illegitimate authorities to impose a certain power structure and by illegitimate authority certainly it means somebody who's a liar who's dishonest who's just exploitative who doesn't really care about people who care about that's very different than a legitimate authority sorry my notes dropped on the floor for a second so if guess, anti- another while your notes are dropping there, <laughs> one of the things that i <laughs> one of the things i try to do instead of just doing through straight definitions there is try to give people a sense of an uh, uh, authoritarian so i give a lyndon johnson quotation by the way there's a lot of authoritarian democratic presidents out there as right. in addition to republican ones and so i give this lyndon johnson quotation one of my favorites about an authoritarian sensibility and he says you know talking about what he wants in appointees he says quote i want him to kiss my ass in Macy's window at high noon and tell me it smells like roses. <laughs> so, once upon a time, we had presidents who were a little bit more gifted in the English language. But, but the main point I use for that quote is, is that not only was Johnson who demanded uh, unquestioning obedience as, as an authority in power, but those ass-kissers that he desperately wanted, they're, they're also authoritarians. Anybody who's willing to kind of kiss up to any and all authorities just to get ahead, they're also authoritarians. So is the legitimacy of authority in the eye of the beholder? Because for every Democrat in the resistance movement who feels Trump is illegitimate for, say, not winning the popular vote or some other reason, there's a Republican who will tell you Obama was not legitimate. So how subjective is legitimacy? Certainly very subjective. I mean, you know, and, and it's based on your judgment of whether somebody is honest 
um, and based on whether your judgment, whether somebody's exploitative. I mean, a, a good example, okay, for me in the book, and you can sort of see this as sort of, a, this is going to really annoy a lot of Trump supporters here, but a good comparison to Trump is really Elijah Muhammad from the Nation of Islam. You know, so for Malcolm X, who is one of the guys I profile in the book as a legitimate anti-authoritarian, I mean, for early on in the game, he saw Elijah Muhammad confronting the legitimate authority of, of white uh, racism and white power and white control and he and and asking for us just to separate and 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 that was very appealing to to Malcolm X. He, he viewed him he viewed him as a legitimate authority and 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 then he realized later on that wow this uh, Elijah Muhammad was a guy who was like breaking all the laws of 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 of, of his religion who was like having sex with secretaries producing babies and then ultimately trying to kill Malcolm X. The Nation of Islam was and he realized this guy is a legitimate illegitimate illegitimate authority and he um you know leaves he leaves the nation of Islam risks that he certain death he knew he was going to get killed and so a lot of these trumpoids out there a lot of folks who are you know for Trump they saw Donald Trump go after you know, one of the ways that he got to power was going after the illegitimate authority of the Republican Party. He, you know, just like just like um, Elijah Muhammad, he went after guys like Jeb Bush and all of these guys who a lot of his people knew these guys were illegitimate authorities. But the, the, but Donald Trump went to do that to get power for himself to be able to be exploitive to not really be what I would consider a legitimate authority um, myself. And you know, and there are some. Trump people, Trump believers, not not many of them who've come to realize that. So do authoritarians recognize in themselves and admit that they are authoritarian? And, and, and on top of that, do they view anti-authoritarians as anti-authoritarians or do they not recognize their own authoritarianism and see anti-authoritarians as rabble rousers and troublemakers? I, I would say, of course, it varies. I mean, there's there's many people who are authoritarians who don't want to view themselves as such. I'm sure Hillary Clinton, who I consider pretty authoritarian, especially the whole Democratic Party. You can see what they did with Bernie Sanders and a lot of other folks. They're 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 fairly authoritarian party um, in terms of not really caring too much about uh, uh, you know they want blind obedience and basically Bernie Sanders was threatened with complete shunning and humility you know and and destroying his political life if he wouldn't wouldn't have supported Hillary Clinton. So that's a kind of authoritarian demand for unquestioning obedience. But, you know, I, I would doubt that she views herself as an authoritarian. And I would I would believe that she would view anybody who is just, you know, questioning, you know, uh, uh, her authority based on her record as, as somebody, yeah, who's just a rabble rouser, a troublemaker. And, and, and certainly, you know, anti-authoritarian is a, is a term that a lot of people like to have associated with them. And authoritarian is a pejorative and negative term. So most most people are not going to want to call themselves authoritarian. I guess maybe Trump doesn't mind, or Hitler, or some people like that, or don't mind at all being called authoritarian. I, I, I can't say for sure. How pernicious is authoritarianism? That is, does one accept certain tenets of authoritarianism and they slowly, possibly, unnoticeably, imperceptibly become authoritarian, even maybe without noticing? 
Yes, and I think, you know, if you take a look at certain periods of American history, there's definitely periods where you have greater anti-authoritarianism, and there are periods where you have greater authoritarianism. So if you look at the 1770s in America, it's a pretty anti-authoritarian era, just like the 1960s were. And then you have more authoritarian eras, like we have in America, where you have, like, Ronald Reagan, you know, winning office in 1980, you know, who basically gets in as, you know, his, his reputation of being a strong man, who, like, put down student revolts. I mean, and that was may people may forget, but that was a big part of what Reagan helped Reagan get elected. He was a strong man, and and he was a little bit more of a charming strong man than the obnoxious guy we got in power right now. But but it's it's been a pretty long authoritarian era in, in, in American society. And I think what happens is is that if you could have a population um, that's scared enough, they 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 can't deal with the tension that's really uh, de- democracy requires. And so and you know you see this. I, I, I'm a psychologist, so I work with families too. It's just not. I'm not. I have interest in levels of uh, society from you know U.S. government to the family. And you see in, in certain families where you know kids who dissent um, are really they're they're dealt with in an authoritarian manner. And then you have families that are are less authoritarian where dissent is taken seriously. And that's really the key ingredient. If you have a family or a society where dissent is squashed. Um, it's an authoritarian family. If you have a, a society where dissent is taken seriously, and because dissent creates some tension, and and the more people cannot handle any dissent, they're going to squash it, and then you have more of an authoritarian family. You have a more authoritarian society. So, to what degree are we seeing a rise in authoritarianism, a rise in the far right, a rise in neo-Nazism here in the United States? Because the United States, through the American Psychiatric Association, has pathologized, has made anti-authoritarianism a mental disease. Well, I, I go through many levels in the second part of the book. It's a, a pack on the assault on anti-authoritarians, and I and I want to make it clear to your audience who hasn't read the book. I know you have, Chuck, but you know that the psychiatric assault on anti-authoritarians is only one sort of uh, spoke in, in the wheel here. There's a criminalization of anti-authoritarians. There's many air levels of way anti-authoritarians get marginalized financially. Um, they get all, all kinds of things happening. But I think a, a more, say, I wouldn't say recent within the last few years, but an increasing thing that's concerned me is my own profession, what I call the psychiatric assault on anti-authoritarians. So you have increasingly kids, for example, um, who are just sort of, you know, oppositional and, you know, who are being labeled with mental illness. And in fact, in 1980, again, coincidentally, same year Reagan gets elected president, the American Psychiatric Publication of Diagnostic Disorder, something called the DSM, um, they come out back then as the DSM-3, now we're up to the DSM-5, but they come out with something called oppositional defiant disorder, literally, and one of the symptoms being refusing to comply with adult rules and requests. And now, I've got to make this clear, this is not um, kids who are breaking any laws, even. These are not juvenile delinquents. These are kids who are not doing anything wrong. They're just you know, non-compliant. They're oppositionally defiant. And so this becomes a mental illness. Now, initially, when I'm, I'm in grad school, when this comes out, and I'm going, I'm totally embarrassed by my profession. This is a joke. But, you know, people took this more and more seriously. And so it went from just being a, a, what a lot of people may be level to kind of another one silly psychiatric diagnosis to one more what we call disruptive behavioral disorder, that kids are literally getting drugged for this. I mean, most kids who are being put on antipsychotic drugs, which are heavily tranquilizing drugs like Seroquel, Risperdal, these kind of things. They've replaced the old-time Haldol, Thorazine stuff. And, you know, most of the kids who are on antipsychotic drugs are labeled not with psychosis, not with things like schizophrenia, bipolar, that kind of thing. They're labeled with these disruptive behavioral 
disorders like oppositional defiant disorder. So that that's one more thing that if you if you take these kids who are not maybe necessarily when they're 8, 9, 12 years old, genuine anti-authoritarians who are assessing whether an authority is legitimate or not. But these are kids who are non-compliant kids. They're stubborn kids. And these are the kids that when you look at, and I go through in my book, I profile like 20 pretty famous anti-authoritarians. A lot of them, when they were young kids, they would have been labeled as, op- they were oppositionally defined disorder, and, and they weren't disorder. They were just oppositionally defined. But they mature. They mature into just taking pride in noncompliance, into taking pride, you know, in a previous era, they take pride in assessing who's a legitimate, who's illegitimate authority, and they have the guts and the courage to be able to challenge and resist. And we're taking that population of future um, and anti-authoritarians vital for democracy, and we're taking them early on before they have any political consciousness, and we're drugging them. And again, like I said, this is just one spoke in the wheel. All right, let's just take a moment to let our audience freak out about that for a moment there. Uh, Sorry, sorry, audience. No, that's okay. Uh, You had an article back in 2012 headlined, Why Anti-Authoritarians Are Diagnosed as Mentally Ill, uh, titled on some websites as, Would We Have Drugged Up Einstein? And to this day, you continue to receive emails from people telling you they believe their anti-authoritarianism or their child's has resulted in mental illness diagnoses. What does that reveal to you about what it means today to be considered mentally ill here in the United States through the American Psychiatric Association? Is mental illness more about an illness or just a simple lack of conformity? Well, in, in, in certain areas, it's obvious, like that oppositional defiant disorder. It's very obvious to most people. I talk to mainstream America, they start laughing, and, and my point is obvious. In a lot of other areas, it's not so obvious. But I've got to tell you, part of the major political movement that I've been involved in since 1994 has to do with dissident mental health professionals, psychiatric survivors, um, people who are very much conform, concerned with uh, coercive treatment and the lack of informed choice. And it was, it's been interesting for me overall, over these couple of decades that a disproportionate amount, when I compare the regular amount of anti-authoritarians I usually run into, um, it's not that many. When I, when I talk to a lot of these ex-psychiatric uh, patients who are now activists, I mean, it's amazing how many of these people who were labeled as once as schizophrenia or bipolar or all these other diagnoses who, who are essentially really, they have a lot of not only anti-authoritarians, but almost they're, a- have the, a- they're almost like anarchists in terms of their, their feelings of you know, not wanting to have deal with hierarchy or lack of, or, or dealing with coercion. And so a lot of you know, there was, I often, and I make this point in the book, that when you take a look at certain eras, like I talk about Thoreau and his buddies in Concord in the 1840s, 1850s, and I take a look at m- m- people who were the anarchists in the 1890s and the early 1900s, so many of those people, when you study them, remind me a lot of these people that I know very well who are like these ex-patient psychiatric survivors. And you were talking about Reagan earlier and the shift away from being very afraid of authoritarianism to seemingly embracing a lot of the tendencies of authoritarianism. You write that in the 1950s and 60s, the horrors inflicted by Nazi Germany were still on the minds of many Americans. And the 1950 book, The Authoritarian Personality, which psychopathologized authoritarian personalities, became popular. But by the 1980s, U.S. society had changed. 1980, Americans elect former actor Ronald Reagan to the presidency, as you were mentioning. He had previously acquired an authoritarian strongman reputation by putting student revolts putting down uh, student revolts as governor of California. In the mid-1980s, the Democrats, wanting to appear as tough as the uh, Republicans, strongly supported anti-crime legislation that has contributed to the United States having the highest incarceration rate in the world, caused in large part by hypocritical drug laws. 
What changed in the United States from the post-war years of concern over authoritarianism to only 25 years later after a war against, against authoritarianism? We have the greatest generation, the people who fought against it, suddenly supporting Reagan. Is this an authoritarian backlash fueled by fear of the chaos that authoritarians saw happening in anti-authoritarian culture in the 60s? It is Reagan and the rise of authoritarianism all those damn hippies' fault? You know, I think there's a lot of elements to that, and that's a, boy, that's a five-hour discussion. But I think you know, one of the things that I make a point in there, and a lot of folks who are like in, say, I talk about uh, violent anti-authoritarians. And again, the book, as you well know, doesn't romanticize all anti-authoritarians. There's some who move into violence. And um, those in the United States, anyways, violence doesn't, you know, usually helps the cause of authoritarianism. We and I give a lot of examples of that, including the, weather, the rise of the weathermen. Who, I mean, I I'm, I understand how that happened. I mean, I don't really. I'm a psychologist, and I understand that these guys felt like totally enraged by no, nothing that none of the protests stopping the war in Vietnam, and, and you know, and they felt this combination of rage and impotence. And um, and you know, in the late '60s, early '70s, they move into like, this, look, the SDS is sued for democratic society aren't working. We have to do something stronger, and they move into violence. They move into bombings, and they move into weathermen. And and what do we have shortly after that is, you know, Nixon wins 1972 election in a landslide um, against McGovern, and part of why he wins is exactly what you just said, is that one of the reasons I wrote this book is I totally understand how frustrated anti-authoritarians can move into violence, but history shows it pretty much doesn't work with some you know, there are some weird exceptions that I only go through, but they're almost like exceptions that prove the rule. Generally, state violence against anti-authoritarians works out pretty well, like Kent State. But um, anti-authoritarians moving into violence, although I totally understand it psychologically, um, it does it, it work. It work. It, feeds into the hands of anti-authoritarians because it gets the population to believe we we need to have strong leaders. You know, to to be because we're afraid of this kind of thing. So how much does the dismissal and disregarding of anti-authoritarians, either by the government or by your social peers or by the media, how much does that provoke anti-authoritarians into violence? Are they ignored to the point where they figure that the system is not working for them? So if the system's not working for them, they have to work outside of the system to get it changed? That's always what happens. That's what happens. And if you go back and read, and you can do it, you can see see the speeches nowadays of Malcolm X speeches, and that's what that's what he said over and over. He predicted the violence. You know, he was assassinated in in, in our early 1965, and he said, "Look, you're not nobody's listening to guys like me. You know, I'm um, and so you're going to see riots, and 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 that that's what ultimately happens. You know, he and he was pushed and prodded. You know, they tried to say, well, are you trying to make it happen? And he and he said, look, I'm I don't have to take a look at history that's what happens when people who are dissenting you know are not taken seriously um you're going to ultimately have certain element of those folks who feel so frustrated who feel so enraged who feel like i say there's this kind of there's this kind of almost like psychological drug of like a sense of pain over personal and political injustice coupled with a sense of impotency it's almost you know for some people 
A lot of people just move into heavy depression over that, get suicidal. That's probably the majority. But a certain element of people will just move into violence and say, look, you know, I've got to do something. And, you know, and I go through some of those characters. And, and you know, and I, and I want to make clearly the case here that we have to understand that psychological process, but it doesn't help. And the folks who have been more triumphant anti-authoritarians, and I go through that, that's one of the final chapters in the book, I go through several more triumphant anti-authoritarians who do accomplish things. They, they're not folks who move into that violence, although they, they're effective not just through dissent. They're effective through being a willingness to not um, cooperate, to disobey, which is very different than violence. How much has anti-authoritarianism then in, here in the United States been killed off by authoritarians in the United States? I, that's what they're going to do. Look, if you're an authoritarian, I mean, I know it's hard for maybe to imagine, but just imagine you're playing a role as an, of an authoritarian. If I'm an authoritarian, let's just say if I'm an authoritarian, I want to make sure I get rid of as many anti-authoritarians as I can. I want to make sure that, um, you know, and you don't have to kill them. As I make a clear case in the book, the best, the first thing authoritarians are going to do is just ignore. That's the first rule. Just try to ignore them, poo If that doesn't work, well, then we'll get our, our professionals, to, we'll, we'll criminalize them, and that's been done in American history. We'll psychopathologize them, we'll, we'll marginalize them financially. We'll do, there's a whole bunch of things, because if you're an authoritarian, you know that you don't even need a majority of, these, of, this, of this group, this oppressed group that I care about, these anti-authoritarians. It's just a significant minority of anti-authoritarians who are voicing the will of the majority. You know, that's enough to create some change. So you want to make sure, if you're an authoritarian, that these folks are, that, that you don't have, they're almost not around at all. Now I know why our ratings are so low. The authoritarians are ignoring us. <laughs> so so uh, you write that in my hen- mental health profession during the 1980s, it was noncompliance rather than compliance that became increasingly pathologized. The American Psychiatric Association publicly, uh, politically in step with U.S. society, revised its diagnostic manual, the then DSM-3, 1980, to include oppositional defiant disorder, as you were talking about, for noncompliant kids who do not engage in criminal behaviors. I noticed that not only did this happen at the beginning of Reaganism, but it seems to have happened at the beginning of neoliberalism. Is there some connection between the rise of neoliberalism and dissent being pathologized? Sure, sure. I mean, that's one of the great you know, sadnesses of most of your listeners out there. And I think a lot of Americans, too, out there, you know, who realize that, wow, there's, you know, when you give, one of the ways to move people into learned helplessness is to give people no real choice. And yeah, there was something, I mean, clearly, you know, you know, Trump was this obnoxious racist and, you know, didn't look like Hillary was. And so there were some differences. I don't mean to say there were no differences between them, but on the major, major issues of being there, pro-war, pro-corporatist, you know, pro, not caring really about a lot of Americans on major issues that every the majority of Americans care about health care for all. They care about like having uh, you know politicians not being paid off by corporations. So you go through issue after issue, and there's no difference really between these you know these uh, folks like Hillary and folks like Trump. You know, there's like I said, there's personality differences, and there's other some differences on just how racist they are. There are differences, but but for a lot of Americans, you just move into a kind of helpless. And you know, one other thing I want to talk about here, because I, I, I trash my profession a lot here. I, it, it deserves a lot of trash. And just, but I, I want to make clear that once upon a time, when, when I was first interested in becoming a psychologist, there was a lot of impressive people in it. it, and it was, you know, you, so you had, for example, in the 1960s, 
Um, you had people like uh, Milgram doing these obedience to authority um, studies, um, and, and they were really important because it was a time where people were going like, hey, how different are Americans than Nazi Germany? I mean, what is, you know, psychologically, are we vulnerable here to obeying any kind of authority to do cruel things? And so there were a lot of things going on in, in my profession, psychology, that, you know, just like there were a lot of other good things happening in the 60s and 70s, worried more about the, the, the problem of obeying illegitimate, abusive, violent authorities than what, what it's come to be. So really my profession has kind of mirrored the rest of America here, caring more about issues of noncompliance than caring about issues of, of compliance. Can we blame all of this pathologizing of making anti-authoritarianism, of making dissent if you will, a mental disease. Can we blame this on the pharmaceutical companies for pushing the drugs on psychiatrists and, and unduly profiting, and uh, especially the private sector's undue pro uh, profits and unfair influence over psychiatric practices here in the United States? That's certainly one major reason, just like prisons for profit are, you know, one of the major reasons why you have these ridiculous incarceration rates in America. So pharmaceutical companies profiting over drugging just about all of us here, including oppositionally defiant kids here, that is one of the pillars. But I think there's other reasons as well here that, that you have... Um, you know, psych psychiatry uh, becoming this, this totalitarian force. I mean, it meets the needs of, of keeping the status quo. If you take a look at, you know, for example, why are Native American kids killing themselves at usually high rates, okay? And if you, can, if you can call it a mental illness, then you don't have to take a look at just mass, you know, just massive, um, you know, centuries of oppression that have happened to them, that have created this thing, that, that, that where you have these mass amounts of substance abuse and suicide going on. So the pharmaceutical companies just are usually a big reason here why they, they yeah, you know, basically they've been next psychiatry. So they they totally pretty much control what everything goes on in there, and so they are part. They are a reason there, but there's there's other reasons too. So um, can uh, is this treatment then of anti-authoritarianism unique to the United States and not taking place in other places where we are seeing a rise of the right, say in the UK, France, Germany, Hungary, Austria, Greece. What you see usually in, in terms of uh, American psychiatry usually takes the lead um, in these kinds of things. And so uh, initially, for example, even something like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which again, a lot of these kids are kids who really, they'll pay attention to things they care about. Um, I know uh, they'll pay attention, for example, if you pay them enough money, and that there a lot of these kids are capable of paying attention. So, some have difficulty paying attention to anything, but a lot of these kids who, who are being labeled with ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder just are really non-compliant, uh, cognitively non-compliant. Not so much, you know, they just refuse to pay attention to stuff that's boring for them, it's not so interesting for them, that's just not worth it for them. So that particular thing you'll see started here in America. I mean, and then um, uh, it's it's spread. It, it goes to um, you see it moving towards Europe at, at one point. You know, sometimes you know, on the continent, France, they used to laugh at ADHD. Now you see it happening um, there. So it, there, there's a spread of like anything that uh, drug companies and um, helps 
people avoid dealing with the realities of why, you know, these kids are so bored in schools. Any, anything that helps with that, you, they're, they're, it's going to be utilized by authoritarians. But a lot of this stuff does get originated first here in America in terms of psychiatry anyways. And you write about, as you were saying earlier, your embarrassment with the mental health profession and how it increased throughout your schooling and internships. And you struggled as to whether you should quit or continue so as to get my PhD, which you argue lacks legitimate authority, yet has provided you with what you describe as the credibility for the mainstream media that, for the most part, bases its assessment of authority solely on their credentials, like the PhD you have in clinical psychology that you say lacks legitimate authority. If that's the case then how authoritarian is our media? How illegitimate is the authority of those whose voices fill the media? The media has become a joke. I mean, not all. I mean, there's some impressive old-time reporters out there. I mean, in my profession, there I can think of like one, a guy named Robert Whitaker, who is like revealing all of these truths, acting like if to, if you're a journalist, you you should be an anti-authoritarian. If you're not, if you're not an anti-authoritarian, you're going to be a, a lousy journalist. You know, a real journalist is somebody who's going to question the legitimacy of all your sources, including the American Psychiatric Association, including the FDA. A real journalist questions and they're going to like assess if this if these guys are corrupt you know if they're not telling the truth and there's less and less uh, there's fewer and fewer journalists like that there are still journalists like that there's still folks like Seymour Hirsch there's guys like I say Robert Whitaker in my profession there's still people like that but they're they're having more and more difficult time for example just making a living I know a lot of these folks myself I mean so it, it is a it is a difficult once you have an era where you can't even you know for those it used to be once upon a time if you were an anti-authoritarian one of the great professions to go into was journalism it was this was a chance for you to that was your job to just you know to assess whether these authorities were you know knew they were talking about whether there are liars and you could get, make a living doing that well that's getting more and more difficult you write what makes life difficult in u.s anti to u.s anti-authoritarians is that americans are indoctrinated to believe that their society celebrates anti-authoritarianism and so they are less prepared for the reality of anti-authoritarian life than others who have not been so indoctrinated if we have such authoritarian tendencies why do we celebrate anti-authoritarianism if we have such, um, say that again. If we have such authoritarian tendencies, why do we celebrate anti-authoritarianism? I think people love to, um, you know, they 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 love to believe that they're rebellious. They love to believe that there's there's somebody who doesn't. Um, you know, comply with anybody or anything. I think that's a, that's a belief that most people want to have about themselves. All right, um, and, but the reality is is that um, it, it, it becomes harder and harder to be that way in American society and, and make a living and to survive. Um, to be like for, to be a, even a, 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 a teacher in school where you're talking about stuff that you you really believe in. You're you're afraid. There's more and more fear that you're that that you're going to lose your job for being somebody who who stands up for what what you believe in. So so there's there's a real uh, I, I think and, that, and we can go even you go on all kinds of tangents like that. It's part of the many many reasons why more and more people are anxious and depressed out there because there's some level everybody would like to be somebody who's not this compliant askist you know that everybody would like to be that way and at some level people are terrified that if they if they aren't that way they're not going to be able to survive at all in any which way and so you know that and and that 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 combination 
um, is going to lead to a lot of people to get more anxious and even be more depressed and move into more substance abuse. So our government using anti-authoritarian symbols and heroes and myths while asking for or wanting, even demanding obedience, does that create cultural conflict? Does that create problems within even the individual? Sure, sure. I mean, if, you know, you, you aspire to, you know, you want to, as a young person, you know, aspire to be somebody who, who has integrity, who has an authentic, to be like some of those people that I described, that I profile in the book, from Malcolm X to Eugene Nips to Thomas Paine to the whole list of folks that I profile who really were genuine anti-authoritarians. And then you realize, and then you, you see, like, oh, this, this this may not be possible. I, I, I may be able to physically, yeah, I may not be able to financially survive. I may be able to get thrown in prison. I'm going to be labeled with some kind of mental illness. That, that creates a certain havoc. And part of the reason why I wrote Resisting Illegitimate Authority was to give these anti-authoritarians some ideas, a path of like, you know, what, what's worked for certain people and what really is, 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 has not been helpful for certain anti-authoritarians. So the far right that showed up in Charlottesville and became violent, are they authoritarians or anti-authoritarians? Because they would argue that they are against the authority and that they are anti-authoritarians, while those who are the, uh, are the Antifa who showed up at those uh, rallies would argue that they are authoritarian. Right. I mean, you're going to have you're going to have those kinds of things again. What I would tell folks is, you know, to, to just repeat a little bit about what I said earlier, that a real anti-authoritarian cares not only about uh, challenging um, illegitimate uh, with their perception of illegitimate authority based on how honest and truthful and caring all that is, but they're not they're not folks who and a real anti-authoritarian does not want to have blind obedience to them. They don't want to have unquestioning obedience to that to, to them. They don't want they they want to have people who are questioning their own authority. All right. So that's one way to kind of tell the difference between folks like I say who are like challenging what they see, you know, as 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 illegitimate authorities versus real anti-authoritarians. So uh, you write that dissent without disobedience is essentially no threat to people in power. Clever authoritarians welcome dissent without disobedience since it can be easily ignored and provides the illusion of a free and democratic society. Only disobedience can threaten authoritarians. How much do we here in the United States have the illusion of a free and democratic society? And is the greatest trick authoritarians ever played on us that they made us believe we are a free and democratic society? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's one of the points that I make in the book. Look, dissent it works if you're living in a democratic society. So if we had a real democratic society, we have dissent in America here in many different ways, not just rallies, opinion polls. Opinion polls show the massive majority of people. I mean, there was a recent poll that showed that 70% of Americans favor Medicare for all. You've got opinion polls showing that the majority of Americans want free college, university tuition public universities, on and on we have these things. So we have, if dissent was effective like that, if you, you know, you'd be living in a, in a democratic society. Part of the way you know when you're not li- you're living in a more authoritarian society is when dissent means nothing. Whether, you know, you know, when you could have two million people showing up opposing a war and it means nothing, and on and on, then you're living in an authoritarian society. And that's what, you know, look, it's not, it's, it's not a, 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 a black or white thing. There's shades of authoritarian and kinds of society. I'm not saying that the United U.S. society is the most authoritarian society out there. It's certainly not. But it, it, when you have the ineffectiveness of dissent, 
you know, that's when you really need anti-authoritarians who are much more comfortable moving on, to, moving past dissent. So, you know, an example for me is like I give an example, the difference between a guy like Bernie Sanders versus his hero, Eugene Debs. Now, so Bernie Sanders, very comfortable with dissent. You know, he made a name for himself, became really by polls like one of the most popular um, politicians in America right now. And but was he willing to disobey the Democratic Party? No. Um, and it was, you know, unlike his hero, Eugene Debs, not only disobeyed the Democratic Party after it was clear to him, you know, he had supported Cleveland several times for president, but Cleveland threw him in jail for what? For leading a, a strike against the Pullman Company, who had cut wages. And then Wilson, a Democrat, throws him in prison for 10 years here for giving a speech against, against the war. I mean, so it became clear to him that, you know, that dissent wasn't, wasn't working here, that he had to disobey. You know, and he had and, and, and anti authoritarians, a guy like Debs became one later in life. Actually he was much more a polite dissenter early on, but he but he but he moved into into being somebody comfortable with realizing, look, if you if you live in a democratic society, dissent's good enough, but if you're living in an authoritarian society, you have to disobey. You have to strike. You have to, for example, like he believed as a, and when he was an early on labor leader, that all you know, you could just have polite discussion and collaboration and that would all work out. He, he it became clear to him these guys who were running the the the, the companies, they didn't care about the workers. They wanted to make as much money as possible and that the only way to get any kind of equity was to was to strike. And and so that and the, and and so you have to understand that you know people authoritarians in power that's the only thing that's going to move them you know boycotts strikes those kinds of things they're not going to care about dissent in fact for them in America today when you just have dissent okay and you have and it just make it just gives the illusion that you have democracy and they actually like that because they're just not threatened by that at all Bruce, one last question for you. We've been speaking with practicing clinical psychologist Bruce E. Levine, author of Resisting Illegitimate Authority, A Thinking Person's Guide to Being an Anti-Authoritarian, Strategies, Tools, and Models. Dr. Levine is on the editorial advisory board of the journal Ethical Human Psychology and Psychiatry, and he is on the medical and scientific advisory board of the National Center for Youth Law. You can find out more about Bruce and see all of his writing at Bruce Levine. Dot net. One last question for you, Bruce, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. To what extent is believing that the United States is a free and democratic society, to what extent is that complicity in, if not capitulation to, authoritarianism? I think to to the extent that you're in denial of the reality of what U.S. society really has been historically all about, what it's done, you know, obviously to Native Americans, but we could pick to many oppressed groups, what it's done in Vietnam, what it's done in, you know, what it's done in many areas, to the extent that you want to believe that, 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 the, that the United States is, is something that it's not, you are complicit to uh, authoritarianism. Um, I mean, as opposed to dealing with the truth of it, just like being in a in a problematic, dysfunctional, abusive family. To the extent that if you're getting beat up by your spouse on a regular basis, and you want to believe your spouse loves you, you know, you're going to ultimately be complicit in an authoritarian situation. So dealing with the truth of things is very painful, creates a lot of tension, but is required to be an anti-authoritarian. Bruce. 
fantastic having you back on the show again. I'm going to be bugging you again in the very near future so I can have you back on the show. I really, really appreciate you, your writing and being back on the show today. Thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Take care. This is Hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. It's all about the children, or at least that's what they used to say during the culture wars. But it's all about the kids. Why? But if it's all about the kids, why is childcare so necessary today for working families and the childcare that is needed is so expensive, unregulated, lacking oversight, and rewarding childcare givers with such low pay and benefits? In just a few, we'll speak with writer and editor Megan Erickson, who posted the Jacobin article, A Blueprint for Universal Childhood. Megan has taught in both public and private schools in New York City. She was on our show nearly three years ago to this very day to talk about her then-just-published book, Class War, The Privatization of Childhood. You can now become a supporter of This Is Hell via Patreon if you become a regular Patreon supporter. Not only will we show our appreciation by sending you some This Is Hell subvertising stickers, but you also have access to special perks, including every week getting a classic interview, a brand new uh, online-only podcast from our back catalog of 20-plus years of on-air conversations selected by me with a new up-to-date introduction on why I selected that interview for our Patreon supporters. And in the future, you'll get uh, additional bonuses, bonus gifts at thisishell.com when you click on support. Actually, you can do that right now. Just go to thisishell.com, click on support, and you Patreon patrons can get some additional perks. So essentially what the uh, podcast is is a completely different show, and and it's not just about the interview anymore. I used to do these long introductions about what the interview was going to be about, but this week it was a little bit different and keeps changing, so it's just a completely different show. Like on this week's Patreon podcast that you can hear right now by signing up to Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, patreon.com slash thisishell. I gave a report from the front lines of the rat war that is raging at our office and new studio space. I also gave an update on my own personal battle with a hoarder in my own building, and I gave a thorough rundown of my health and physical condition of late and how this is hell is killing me. It's literally killing me. But you can only hear that by subscribing to This Is Hell's online-only podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We also shared our August 7th, 2002 interview with David Holm, co-author of Just Give Money to the Poor, which was an eye and brain opener for me when we did the interview eight years ago. So if you wonder if we should just give money to the poor and why, you got to listen to that interview with David Holm because that's exactly what we should be doing. Alex, did you share anything else on Patreon? We'll get to what we're playing in a little bit, but did you share anything else on Patreon this week? Uh, no. Be- oh, just to let everyone know. Actually, uh, yeah, I did. I shared uh, a late-night post-bar uh, movie recommendation from Chuck uh, for his favorite, I believe, Canadian short film, <laughs> Canadian environmental short film. Uh, and, yeah, so for people who donate at any level, um, I every other... So the main Patreon podcast is for people who donate at the $4 a month level, and that's every week you get a new Patreon archive podcast. However, I've been playing for anyone who donates at any level uh, every other week uh, more content, too. And I think, actually, next week, because some people have been asking about this, I'm going to be playing... One of the war nerd, Gary Brecker's 
uh, appearances on The Cell. He's been on the show twice, I believe. I think so. Maybe three times. Yeah, the movie, uh, thanks to Derek, uh, he suggested it, and I told, I remembered it once he started talking about it, is called Paddle to the Sea, and it's about a kid who, a uh, native, uh, you know, first Canadian who carves a little canoe, and it travels to the sea. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, Chuck was talking about it at the bar, and so I shared a link to it on Patreon.com. It is definitely not a movie that you can just watch anywhere on YouTube uh, by typing in Paddle to the Sea. It's something you only have to give us money to, and then you could get a link to it. No, I'm just kidding. You could just, it's just on YouTube. Uh, but uh, I, the Gary Brecker interview I'm posting on Monday for everyone on Patreon. Uh, we want to thank those who have already signed up as Patreon supporters. Thanks this week goes to Julian, Kevin, Tommy, Maya, Daphne and Barbara and you can join them and another 267 listeners in supporting This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber at thisishell.com and then click on support or just go to patreon.com slash thisishell patreon.com slash thisishell okay now on next week's Patreon podcast I think Alex may actually have some audio to play and if so this is groundbreaking for This Is Hell we're actually using recorded audio on the air so alex what's going on on next week's patreon podcast? oh i thought it was i thought i was gonna be playing a clip from this week's podcast oh people know what they missed all right well yeah let's do that instead then. okay so uh, just to keep in mind that your support is really needed for this sort of important journalism that we've been doing uh and it's kind of thing you can only hear on the patreon podcast so let's take a listen to some this, of the very important journalism that people are this funding is david holm talking about why give money or give money directly to the poor yeah this is and keep in mind how important it is uh that you fund journalism just like this <laughs> this one smell is rat piss and so i've smelled it up by my dumpster in the past at my own oh, house wrong, wrong clip and now i know <laughs> what that rat piss smells like so now i became educated like i said i loves me some learning and this week i learned the smell of rat piss so oh. that's part of our patreon podcast yeah, from this yeah, week so that you can hear. Yeah, that was my funny little joke everyone here's uh, actually one question and answer from david holm uh chuck talking with the author of just give money to the poor yeah why do you think it is, at least, that uh, we allow cash transfer programs within the industrialized West? We have a social security system. We have unemployment. We have Medicare. We have Medicaid here in the United States. Why is it allowed within our Western industrialized nations? But then we don't like the concept when we are talking about trying to help out the poor in other nations. I think um, two main reasons for that. One is that... Uh particularly when one's looking at, at the way that the, the rich world is able to influence the, the poor world and one looks at aid relationships, then foreign governments have been reluctant to trust poor people in, 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 in other countries. Uh, that's very foolish of them because the evidence shows overwhelmingly that poor people in poor countries uh, really put masses of effort into strategizing and planning how to use, you know, just one or two or five dollars and that's David Holm. He is a co-author of Just Give Money to the Poor. You can hear that right now by going to patreon.com slash thisishell on our next Patreon podcast. I'm not sure which of the reports that we are going to be sharing or how many of the reports we're going to be sharing, but in 2004 and 2005, uh, Truth Out, now at Truth Out, reporter Dar Jamal reported to us live from Baghdad during the war in 2004 and 2005 in Iraq. He reported to us uh, from Baghdad three times, then once he was here in studio with us so we'll be playing some of those live reports unembedded Iraq war journalist Dar Jamal will be playing those on next week's Patreon podcast but you can only 
hear our new live streaming audio and video Patreon podcast by subscribing to us via Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to everyone who supported this is hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. Your support will be needed more than ever as dissent continues to be shunned by the establishment, corporate mainstream media, and criminalized by the U.S. justice system. Show your support by joining us on patreon.com slash this is hell. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. Speaking of my health, I've been sick since the middle of my annual summer vacation. Perfect timing. I always seem to get sick when going on summer vacation. I want to thank listener Ampula for some great advice in preparing for vacation for everyone who travels. Ampula writes, Chuck, vacation qualifies as eustress or positive stress. Stress equals stress, which results in exhaustion and depletion of the immune system. So yeah, lots of us get sick on vacation. I recommend 1,000 to 2,000 IU of vitamin D3 for two to four weeks prior to vacation to pump you up before hitting the road, rails, or sky. That's 1,000 to 2,000 IU of vitamin D3 for two to four weeks prior to vacation. And I think I'm going to start doing that. So thanks, Ampula, and thanks to everyone for all their well wishes while I was out with I still still don't know what it was. And thanks to Clara for dropping by some honey that she extracted, believing that that would be good for my health. And I don't know about that, but it's delicious. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's your fall look? What's your fall look? All replies get read on the air right now. Our favorite wins one of our newly redesigned This Is Hell t-shirts, which you can get right now for supporting This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Again, the question from hell is, what's your fall look? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during or listen right now, and you can find out all of the responses and to find out if you've won. Alex, you have all of the answers to this week's question from hell. Uh, what's your fall 2018 look? George H. says, something from Sears or Kmart, get it while they exist. <laughs> That is depressing. <laughs> uh, there won't be seekers that came out. Uh, uh, next up is Jacob P., who sent us a meme uh, image of a cat. I assume naked because cats just are naked, uh, lying in a field next to a bottle of liquor that says, where the F am I? Uh, so I don't know if he's wearing the cat or wearing the hat's expression. I don't know what that means. Anthony P. said, I like to start with a base coat of sweat and then layer an inappropriate number of shirts and jackets before topping the look off. With the aroma of coffee farts. That is terrible. That's awful. Uh, what is your fall 2018 look? Pammy H says, fatter, which I really liked. Uh, I'm with you, Pammy. I'm wearing the same look. Joseph D says, pumpkin toupee. Max I says, yeezy, fosheezy, my deezy neezy. And you're not going to win for making me say that out loud on the radio. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, and especially a Canadian telling you to do yeah, that. That's Mi- really annoying. Mika D says, basement chic. <laughs> Eric T. says, a noose. P.S. Welcome back, gents. You are missed. Thank you. Warren L. says, whatever's a goodwill. I'm with you there, too, Warren. What is your fall 2018 look? Daniel Daniel N. says, I'm dressing as Toad from Mario Kart. (laughs) (laughs) In reference to uh, Donald Trump's penis, according to Stormy Daniels. Yeah. Love to know all about our president's dick. He should have those uh, spots looked at then. Have you ever looked at that guy? Also, Toad was from, uh, like, Mario, not from the Mario Kart universe. He's from the Mario universe. You don't have to say Mario Kart. Uh, maybe but she Star- said yeah. Super Mario Kart in the book. And oh, that's okay. That's why I came up that way. Yeah. Uh, I guess we all experience the Mario universe in our own ways. Gorilla G says, scorn with a splash of spite. <laughs> Evan I says, Olivia Barth, something for you and your roommate, uh, referencing the image that I used, uh, the stock photo gym of two women wearing a jack-o'-lantern sweater. Andrew T says, probably the same thing I wore post-election fall 2016. Crushing disappointment. <laughs> 
What's your fall 2018 look? Scott S says, Orange Klingon is the rage. <laughs> Graham MM says, After the hottest summer on record, mine is burnt to a screaming pile of ashes look. Very chic. Zach B says, A Trump steak face mask, <laughs> followed by my signature orange number seven. KHM says, As a broke college student, whatever I can find, I keeps. Size and color be damned. Brian D says, Starving zombie Donald, can't find any brains. <laughs> Sebastian M says something along the lines of the Red Guard from China. <laughs> uh, Nick A says copious amounts of oil. I'm going as Tik Kwan Duk. Oh, good lord. <laughs> Court H says a still suit from Dune, but it doesn't turn the pee pee back into water. <laughs> I, I think that's just pants. Dan K said duh, and then posted a link to the sexy Handmaid's Tale costumes that were just uh, taken down everywhere. Uh, Evan D Wait, said, what? there were sexy Handmaid's Tale costumes. There were? Yeah, like, why not? <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all for it. Uh, uh, Evan D says, I've got a whole shipping container of counterfeit Chinese MAGA hats. Get them while they're hot. Hey, I, I just want to do an aside here real quick. Hey, uh, Laura, please look into that Handmaid's Tale outfit. Thank you. Uh, Gregory M says, could you hear Leo yawning just then? Yes, I thought he was getting <laughs> sick. I thought he was retching. I wasn't sure. Uh, Gregory what M says, whatever is on the neighbor's washing line. Jack B says, what's fall? It's 90 degrees here. I feel hot just <laughs> looking at my denim jacket and plaid shirts. What's your fall 2018 look? Dennis H says, I literally own four shirts. So one of those. <laughs> Nick E says, Steve McQueen in Great Escape. Sweatshirt with cutoff sleeves, khakis, brogans, baseball mitt and ball. Chandler H. says, sans culotte, getting a head of the whole guillotine thing coming. Of course Chandler would want sans culotte. Go ahead. Fergus F. says, whatever I scavenge in this hellscape. <laughs> Louis D. says, my fall look is bloody knees. My fall look <laughs> is prone. My fall look is supine. Because <laughs> he's literally fallen. It's so stupid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kaylee J. says, still rocking the sweet Meteor of Death 2016 <laughs> campaign logo sweater. Mark A. Er, Mark A. says, Columbus Day ugly sweater, and Joel S. says, I'm going to exercise my option and wear my long sleeve uniform shirt. My response to the question from hell, what's your fall look? While my look from season to season is mostly the same and sadly stuck in the same style it's been in since I was 12 years old, I think this year I'm going to go with something I'm calling grunge fop. That is, <laughs> I want to have an affected and excessive way that is also, you know, way to dress that is also seen as lazy yet raucous. Grunge fop. It's all the rage. That makes... Oh, hey, sorry. Uh, I just got a couple more. Oh, okay. Facebook changed their algorithm for how they show you comments, and it is uh, really confusing me. Okay. So a couple more. Uh, Jeffy D says, embarrassment. Aaron B says, slave-produced Nike shirt, pants, socks, and shoes, all with a swoosh cut and are burnt off, accompanied by a racist and an irrational sense of accomplishment, and a can of Budweiser. Oh. What's your fall 2018 look? Joseph J says, people who buy clothes with holes in them are always the same people who have never had a job that created holes in the clothes they wore. <laughs> Funny. Adam D says, 90 empty bottles of Pepsi Max strung to the back of a Toyota Yaris with just gaming marker chalked on the rear window. I think that's it. Let me uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I'm looking forward to uh, this is what I always love in the fall and I enjoy it in the spring as well. But it goes in reverse. I, I love in the fall when you see somebody wearing a huge down Gore-Tex jacket, Gore-Tex jacket when it's like 68 degrees outside. But then you see that same person in the spring when it's 42 
And not only are they not wearing that jacket, but they're in shorts. That's the part I always look forward to in the changing of seasonal fashion. All right, so let's see. The answers I like the most for what's your fall look. Pammy H saying fatter was great. Mika D saying basement chic is really funny because I know the circumstances within Mika wrote basement chic. And Dennis H saying one of his four shirts. I'm going to go with Dennis H. One of his four shirts is definitely the best answer that we got for what's your fall look. Uh, You have now won a fifth shirt, which is a This Is Hell t-shirt, newly redesigned This Is Hell t-shirt that everybody can find right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And if you're a Patreon patron, you can donate $5 less and get that same shirt. This is how office hours happen this and every week from nine or 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from the This Is Hell office and our studio as well, which we are getting close to completing. Drop by the bar any Wednesday evening, hang out and chat me up. And if I remember, I'll give you a free book related to the show just for dropping by. If I remember, I haven't been doing that lately. So you got to remind me. Come on in, say hello, watch me drink. Maybe get a free book and some This Is Hell advertising stickers so you can subvert public advertising with the words This Is Hell. This Is Hell Office Hours, Wednesday, 6 to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. I'm not going to pretend I remember everyone who went to any of the office hours of late. In fact, I'm not going to pretend I remember anyone. But let's see. There was a vague memory of seeing Leo and Alex there. I remember someone bringing in random pizza again. Uh, I have these names written down on a bar napkin, so I assume these are people who drop by or on my hit list or something. Let's see. Here's the list. Frank, Anna, Julie. I guess you were there, Alex and Leo, because your names are here too. Wally, Joel, Dave, Tom, Brian. And I think that's two Brians, unless I was really, really wasted and one Brian became two. Max, Ronaldo, and Jake. Oh, yeah, Jacob Hamburger, who has been on the show a few times and used to write for Charlie Hebdo, dropped by when I was in the middle of my sickness hell. You, too, can talk me up and get free books and stickers at This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Coming up on This Is Hell, discrimination against child caregivers in America's privatized daycare industry reveals why the U.S. needs to join the rest of the industrialized and some of the non-industrialized world in providing universal daycare. And Jeff discovers micro-generations during his moment of truth. That stuff, plus we might get back into the wacky side of our listener feedback this week. We got through all the guest suggestions. Uh, and uh, we'll be telling you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I seriously doubt we'll get twist off knowledge. Yes, another end of the world is possible. This is hell. If we truly cared for children the way we say we do, then why are we putting kids in childcare operations that have been privatized into unregulated facilities that lack any oversight and barely reward their caregivers instead of making childcare a national priority? as other countries have. Go figure. Here to help us figure this out, writer and editor Megan Erickson posted the Jacobin article, A Blueprint for Universal Education. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Megan. Thanks. 
Happy to be here. Megan was on our show nearly three years ago to this very day to talk about her then just published book, Class War, The Privatization of Childhood, which is outstanding. And everybody, if you're a parent or even if you're not a parent, this is something that you should definitely read. Again, Class War, The Privatization of Childhood. Megan is an editor at Jacobin and has taught in both public and private schools in New York City. And you write that during your first twinges of labor, you walked beyond the 10 block radius my OBGYN had prescribed me defying uh, her bed rest orders for one reason, to tour daycare centers and get my unborn kid on as many waiting lists as possible. I knew I had to take the risk only because I'd worked for three years on youth and family programs at a high-quality New York nonprofit, and you mentioned how you witnessed at least 20 applications for children in utero and two for children who hadn't even yet been conceived. Sometimes mothers mentioned to me that they'd miscarried but would like to give keep their application open and did in fact conceive again before receiving an offer of admission. For those who are not parents, why is it so important to get your kid on daycare center waiting lists even before they're born or conceived? How much demand is there? So about half of American children live in areas where the demand for child care centers dramatically um, uh, is higher than the, spot, the spots that are available, particularly with infant care, um, because infant care is just obviously much more expensive. Um, one thing that is true in New York City, probably true in most urban areas at least, is that it needs to be on a ground floor for evacuation and safety purposes. Um, there's a, There needs to be a higher number of caregivers in the classroom um, just to have, you know, basic quality and provide um, for the needs of all of the children. It's obviously much more intensive um, care that you're giving the kids in terms of their basic needs. Um, and it's very, very expensive. Regulated child care programs, um, as I'm saying, are few and far between, but they're also kind of financially out of reach for many families as well. So that's another piece of it. Um, but yeah, there, there just are not enough good quality programs. So one of the, um, even, even having run a program like this, I was shocked when I did some of the research for this piece. Um, so there's a child advocacy organization called Child Care Aware of America, and they did a survey of, um, all of the, um, regulations around state by state around child care and oversight that was done. And, um, the only, so no state got an A, the only program that got a B was the Department of Defense program, which also happens to be one of the only federally funded, well, the only federally funded program besides Head Start um, that provides child care. Um, and you might be thinking like, oh, this is an advocacy organization. They were asking, you know, maybe too much of, of child care uh, facilities. Teachers have a difficult job. Um, daycare directors have a difficult job. And that was my first thought. But no, it was actually very basic requirements that, that these centers are failing over and over again. So um, only 31 states require a fingerprint check for child care staff. Um, 23 require a check of the sex offender registry out of 50 states. 30 states inspect centers two or more times per year. Um, nine states don't require any type of annual inspection, and only 16 of 50 states address each of 10 basic um, health and safety requirements that were recommended by pediatricians for children. So that is the state of licensed child care. The other kind of child care that um, 
that is open to parents and which many parents end up choosing because it's cheaper is home-based childcare, um, which varies hugely in quality. So you can have wonderful home-based childcare. Um, and then that can be anything from like, you know, a family member to a friend. Um, but you can also have really awful home-based childcare because it is not, even in a state like New York, where the regulations are much more intense than, um, for example, Mississippi, which has very low regulations um, or very few, um, it's still, there's, there is, it's not even required to be inspected by the Department of Health. Um, so, and it's, it's important to remember just how difficult this job is and how much oversight it does require. I found my, like the teachers that I worked with were excellent. Um, I, I'm a teacher as well. Like I know how hard this work is, but you also, um, you know, you, you really need others to hold you accountable. And that's something that if you're a good teacher, you want like in a meaningful way. Um, and that's just not being done, um, at all in, in the United States system that we have. It's really kind of a piecemeal process. It's something that's left to individual states. It's not well-funded. Um, in some states, it's not funded at all. Um, and and these are these are the schools, the daycares that our kids are going to. The death rate, by the way, in home-based childcare, which it's horrendous to have to even talk about, is 12 times higher than in licensed programs. Um, and so the report that I was talking about was around licensed programs, um, but these unlicensed programs, um, as I was saying, are, are much more dangerous because providers may not have been trained in things like um, safety infant sleep. So like in the early 90s, there was a big shift um, around the death and the recommendations for how children sleep. Some providers who've been working for years and years and years may not even be aware of this. Um, so, you know, like as a, as a new parent, parents are like really um, often advised or are always advised by the uh, nurses and hospital staff, you know, put your baby to sleep on their back over and over again. There's um, like posters in every OBGYN's office, um, but providers don't necessarily have that same kind of contact and information. Um, and so some of them are still putting kids to sleep on their stomach. And that's actually even more dangerous for a kid who's used to sleeping on their back. Um, and, and since deaths are one of the number one causes of daycare death. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's just a, a really untenable situation. Um, and as I say in the piece, um, I don't think there's any way that we can uh, uh, attribute these deaths to anything besides capitalism, because it's our country, um, the United States, has really chosen this path. Um, there's a history behind it, um, and, and pretty much at every point throughout that history, we have opted for private solutions that uphold the quote-unquote traditional family structure. Um, without providing any public support for children and for families. So when it comes to the daycare, the child care industry being regulated, I'm sure that those who are the private interests, the private concerns who would like to profit from this more, see it as being too regulated. They may sing, see things like you were mentioning, how uh, the, the child care centers need to be on the ground floor in order to evacuate better. They may see that as too much regulation. But I want to step away from that idea just for a second. When you, In your experience, how, I, I don't want to say too much or too, too little uh, regulation, how inappropriately 
regulated is the daycare, childcare industry? Are there regulations that just don't seem to make sense that also need to be changed aside from it not being regulated enough? That's a great question. So I would say um, generally overall, um, there's just so little regulation and it's so inconsistent. It's it's a little bit different than K-12 public education where uh, people like the Gates Foundation, the Walton Family Foundation have kind of swooped in and said, oh, this is an opportunity to really shape the workers of the future and have a say in public policy um, through, you know, treating children as beneficiaries and not, um, you know, supporting democratic public schools. It's a little bit different with child care because um, it's, there's, there's, it, the interest groups are not really there yet. It's more of a sense of like, um, lip service by like liberal kind of senators um, saying, you know, we've got to invest in children or the wave of the future and all of that. Um, and another thing that I say in my piece is that um, what as leftists, it's really important that we focus on the fact that children are human beings and need good facilities now. They need to like have a place where they can go and um, be joyful and learn um, regardless of what they are supposed to be giving back to the economy at, at any point. Um, because programs that are compens- compensatory, sorry, um, like Head Start, have traditionally their means tested, meaning that um, it's lower income families that that are able to use them. So there's a stigma, the quality is less, and they're they're constantly being cut in terms of funding. Um, and also evidence abounds that redistribution is a much more effective way of dealing, addressing with um, both academic outcomes and poverty. Um, so really early childhood education needs to be kind of um, promoted by advocates as something that is intrinsically valuable because children are intrinsically valuable. Um, but also there is one piece to respond to your question that I do think is really, really out of step with um, what what should be happening in terms of regulation. And it's more the way that it's being implemented. Um, so this is not true in every state because, they get, again, we have this really very piecemeal system where different states have different laws. But in New York City, one of the things I saw over and over again is that here, um, so to be a head teacher, you're required to have a master's degree. If you're working at an NGO, a community-based organization that's not affiliated with the public schools, you could be making $30,000 as a head teacher, which is not a lot to live in a city. Um, I think off the top of my head, the average salary for an early childhood educator is about $20,000 a year, which is below the uh, poverty threshold for a family of four. But so these teachers are expected to be spending their time um, getting their master's degrees, paying for their master's degrees, all while uh, and going into debt, you know, just like everybody, but all while being paid these minuscule salaries. Um, and, and it's also, it's a difficult job. It's a demanding job. Um, and, um, you know, what I write in the piece is that over and over again, I see workers, mostly women, some men, um, really like we're building this system on their backs. They're showing up every day for the most part. They're doing a great job and they're doing their best to work 
with children and, and provide great care. Um, and then they're, they're going home and they're like studying and paying for degrees on their own. And I think that, that so <laughs> my solution would not be that we lessen that regulation or that we take it away, of course. Um, I think that education is a critical component of being a teacher, but it needs to be subsidized, just like the um, the, the certification tests that t- that happen for teachers in New York State and in some other states um, that do have good regulation systems in place. These exams can be like thousands of dollars, and it really cuts off, um, you know, the ability to like improve yourself, develop yourself professionally. Um, and, and become a better teacher from people who, who would otherwise, who are great teachers in many cases, um, and maybe stuck in an assistant teacher role where they're making less money, um, or, or like I said, maybe going to night school, missing out on time with their families and things like that. Um, so I think the teacher education component and professional development is a regulation that needs to be more consistent. It needs to be strong. It, there should be a lot of education for teachers. Um, but it needs to be fair to teachers, and it's not fair right now. Yeah, and you're right. Uh, for the most part, child care workers and daycare directors devote an extraordinary amount of time and energy to filling in the immense gaps left by a lack of federal guidance, funding, and support. First year right. that you worked as a teacher, you write that I subsisted entirely on Red Bull and smoked turkey slices I kept in my purse. I bet that purse smelled great. So I could use the uh, <laughs> 25 minutes students were given for lunch to talk to them about things other than content. I do not know a single teacher who hasn't routinely given up lunch breaks or taken back home, taken work home to do into the wee hours of the morning after putting their own kids to bed. So how aware are the parents who are being served by the hard work that the teachers are doing in child care and education for their kids? How aware are they of that hard work? Because I'm trying to figure out if that's the case, why are teachers so demonized? Why do we undervalue them so much? You say that it's a hell of a lot to demand of people making $20,320 $20,320 a year, the national yeah, median wage yeah. for early childhood right. teachers. So why do we hold them with such uh, low financial value as well as cultural value? Yeah, well, that's a really big question. I think, I mean, there's the individual human relationship component of that. Well, first of all, Americans generally have always said when asked, about um, their individual child's teacher, if they're doing a good job, if they like the teacher, if they like the school, they've always been really positive about the education system. Um, in the 80s, when there was the report A Nation at Risk published, um, and there was sort of a backlash against schools, schools became the enemy and the reason why American students weren't so competitive. Um, that changed a little bit, and people respond to media headlines, um, and they, they will talk about the or respond negatively about the school system overall. Um, because they hear from, from media sources um, funded by foundations that it's not doing a good job um, based on these standardized tests. Um, but but overall, Americans feel like their child's teacher is doing a good job. I think um, I think many parents do appreciate teachers' work. You know, you always have people who are really entitled and um, you know ridiculously demanding, which I have certainly seen in my career. But for the most part, I think I think most parents are really grateful um, uh, about the work that teachers do and understand how difficult it is. Um, but the problem is that when you have such a, a system that is just so privatized and individualized, 
um, those families, their efforts, even if, so a lot of them don't know how bad the situation is. A lot of them don't know what their child's teacher is being paid um, because the price tag is really high. So if you're paying like $37,000 a year, you're like, where is that money going? A lot of times it's going to administrator salaries, um, you know, various things. It's really expensive to run a program as well. But um, I think it's really important that like parents need to sort of band together. Um, one of the teachers that I interviewed for the piece mentioned to me that um, a center that she'd worked at um, a year ago had the parents had gotten together. They found out so a teacher left, um, and and low salary is also it's not just unfair to teachers, but it's dangerous for children. And I can tell you as an administrator of a program, it is really, really difficult to, there's so many different routines and things, um, you know, safety requirements. It's really difficult to catch up a new employee on, um, you know, where like all of the different things that they need to know to be able to adequately care for a child and support them. Um, and so when an employee leaves, that's something that like affects the entire community and the service of the children and the way parents feel about, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very intimate early childhood is a very, very intimate, um, and connected kind of world. And, um, so losing that uh, teacher, um, at this particular school caused parents to say like, well, why are you leaving? And she said, I can, I've, go to the DOE, the Department of Ed in New York City, which now has a, a universal pre-K program, and it's unionized. I can make more money there, um, and so I have to go. And so parents banded together and demanded that the salaries be increased at this particular school for teachers, um, and the administration then had to say, okay, we'll do that. But then next year, the parents got a letter saying, because of this, your tuition is going to increase. Um, so it was kind of like retaliation almost against the parents who were siding with the teachers. Um, so this is all to kind of illustrate how, um, how, why a universal program is so important um, and how the sort of division, the piecemeal um, assembly of programs is, is really, uh, you know, causing, it's giving management the upper hand, as it always does. You write when a National Institute of Child Health and Human Development study found a link between long hours and daycare and behavioral problems. Some headlines crowed with perverse joy. One saying, sorry, working moms, daycare is bad for your kid. That's the New York Times took a more concerned tone. Poor behavior is linked to time and daycare. And then there was the gleeful uh, literary, a generation of little savages raised in nurseries as daycare is linked to aggression in toddlers. How accurate are those headlines, or are they misleading? And if they are misleading, what explains to you that misleading nature of these headlines within the media about childcare? Yeah, they're they're very misleading. Um, so, <laughs> uh, lots and lots of studies have been done. It's pretty difficult. There's so much um, kind of emotional. Uh, baggage around this topic, which is evidenced in the headlines that you just read, that it's difficult to discern, even in the studies, where people's biases lie and and, um, to find quality studies around this. It's also hard to do long-term studies on children. Um, But all of the studies that have been done 
show that quality daycare, um, it, it has no um, effect one way or the other on children. So what matters most, um, the, the vast majority of the actual good research studies out there have shown, is um, socioeconomic factors, just like in K-12 education. It is, um, you know, the educational status of the child's parents, um, their income, um, all of those factors that kind of um, stand in for class when you're looking at sociologists' work. Um, as well as I was really interested to find um, the happiness of the mother. Um, and so, and it was specifically talking about mothers. So um, women that felt like they wanted to go to work and left their children in daycare had happier children. Um, women that felt that they wanted to stay home and were doing that had happier children. So um, when it, it, it's, it's not difficult to understand when parents um, don't feel, it's common sense is what I mean. When parents feel guilty, um, the outcomes for their children are not as good as when they do not. Um, but overall, it, it all kind of comes back to class and to, to the quality of the daycare program. So if you're putting your child um, in a daycare program like the ones that I mentioned that are dangerous or that are just, you know, staffed by people who are not qualified, who are not happy in their jobs, then obviously you're going to have negative outcomes. So interestingly, even in those cases, um, researchers found that all of the negative behavioral effects had diminished by middle school. So that's another kind of thing that we have to remember when we're looking at early childhood is that kids are resilient and no child should have to be in a low quality daycare program because again, all humans are intrinsically valuable. Um, but even in those cases, the kids like came back and, and did a great job in middle school, um, you know, and, and it had no effect on them. So um, daycare is really clearly being demonized in the media. Um, it has been, you know, since women went back to work in massive waves in the 1970s, um, you know, it, all pretty much all classes of women in the United States. Um, and, and there's clearly a um, economic as well as a social, cultural reason for that. So um, I write a little bit about some of the past programs that we had um, in the United States to address child care needs. One of those was the Lanham Act, which was passed in the 40s during World War II. Um, and that was when, you know, the soldiers were away, women were going back to work in factories. Um, and they created with the act 3,000 child care centers to provide care for women while they were away. Um, those centers were seen by the people who ran them as potentially a model for universal day daycare or preschool. Um, and what happened was then when men came back home from war, um, they ended up being closed down. And a lot of the senators, um, one particular senator stood out as I was reading sources, um, said it had the taint of socialism um, and that it goes against the traditional American home, which, as you know, is really a fantasy. There, There is no traditional American home. Um, there have been lots of different family forms that have gone on throughout generations. Um, but it's, it's, it's an idea that holds a lot of weight for people, um, particularly conservatives, obviously. Um, but then as well, there was a comprehensive 
um, Child Development Act in the 1970s, which was passed by Congress, uh, but was vetoed by Nixon because he did not want to put the vast authority of the U.S. government down on, let me see if I can get the quote right, on the socialist um, child-rearing practices or something like that. It, it was another case in which traditional American family raising was raised as something that ha- that is private and that is individual, um, and that the state has no responsibility to children, um, but but parents do, individual parents do. I, so I lo- everything is kind of on the bur- the shoulders of those hands. I love how we're underfunding, under resourcing childcare, threatening the which threatens the lives of children because of a fear of communism. It's it's astounding to me that that is what is one of the guiding ideas in being opposed to childcare, that women's place is in the home. How much is this driven by not only a fear of communism, how much is this driven by is the lack of prioritization of a universal childcare situation here in the United States? How much is that driven by sexism, misogyny, patriarchy? Um, that's a good question. I think... I mean, I, I try, I don't, I don't really in this piece and just in life in general, I don't really like, um, I don't care about people's attitudes. I care more about the economics and and the money that is put forward and the legislation that makes it possible, um, for women to raise families. Um, I think that freedom and Social services for women and children shouldn't be predicated on people not being misogynistic or, you know, um, ha- feeling good about women because I don't know if that's ever going to be the case. Um, that everybody does. Um, I, I do think. I mean, obviously, there's misogyny and sexism that is involved in this um, because we're. I think it's actually more like I would describe it as like a conflict within people. Like I, w- I was looking at Richard Nixon um, in particular. I think he's he's like an interesting figure in this history because he sent- sentimentalized his mother um, in the same way that some of the reformers that I write about in the piece um, did as well with women, which is like, you know, some women are so great because they're in the home. Um, so it was all sort of more of a positive stereotype of women that was driving him. Um, and so we have these kind of dual expectations where women are doing more of the work um, that are not necessarily hateful, though I, you, can't, <laughs> you can't look at conservatism without um, seeing a lot of hate towards women. And I think particularly um, poor women and women of color um, who, you know, we don't want to give any money to children, but we don't hesitate to imprison a black mom who is at a job and has taken her daughter to the park because she has no daycare. Um, and we don't hesitate to take wages from men um, to, you know, provide support to their families um, rather than give, and we never give that, you know, as a national government to families that need it. It's, it's all an individual thing. Again, the burden of, the burden is on the parent. Um, so, so yes, there, I think there is definitely sexism and misogyny involved. Um, but I, I think that's more of a, it's kind of a vaguer, um, in a, in a vaguer and less direct way to me. 
You write that Congress doesn't hesitate to use the full power of the state to force fathers to pay child support. Child Protective Services commonly takes unsupervised children into custody and deems them abandoned, which uh, happened recently to a South Carolina mother who could not afford the cost of summer camp and left her nine-year-old daughter to play in a park while she worked at a local McDonald's. The mother was jailed. Already this year, (laughs) a Chicago mother has been arrested for allowing her children to walk to the dollar store alone while she was at work, as well as for allowing her family to live in deplorable conditions, quote-unquote in other words, for being poor. To what extent has it become a crime to parent while poor? Yeah, and I'm laughing because you you read my mind. That's exactly what I had just brought up. Um, so, so that's where I think we really see the real like sexism, racism, misogyny um, in this system is when it comes to um, criminalizing mothers, um, you know, who, who don't have any daycare. And you know, again, it's something that is the United States is almost it's alone among OECD countries. It's almost there's only two other countries in the world that don't provide some sort of child care or um, universal provision for children. Um, and so, you know, again, we're, we're policing children. You can't kind of open the news without seeing a story of a parent arrested because they like let their child walk to school or, um, you know, we have this hyper um, intense demand on women to monitor their own children while giving zero state support. Um, And so that's, that's really a huge problem. And again, it's, it's unfair. It's unjust. But Megan, we all know, that the Family Medical Leave Act saved, fixed everything. Everything is fine now that the Family Medical Leave Act has been deployed. Now, obviously, it, as you point out in your article, it has shortcomings. But how much has the passing of the federal, federal uh, the Family Medical Leave Act actually led to people being distracted from the problems that we are seeing that we're facing on a daily basis when it comes to child care? Yeah, so the Family Medical Leave Act. So much to say. <laughs> it was passed in the 90s, um, 1993, which, by the way, the fact that that's the last time that any change has been made um, to our medical family uh, leave policy, paid parental leave policy, is, or unpaid in this case, is insane. Um, but yeah, so it's just for people who've not used it, it is a policy that allows workers, um, regardless of gender, um, to take 12 weeks of leave um, upon the birth, and I believe the adoption as well, of a child. Um, It falls under, it applies to, it's it's not specific to child raising, so it applies to all workers. Um, But the problem is that it's unpaid. So most people, first of all, not everybody is covered. Um, Your employer has to have at least 50 employees to have to, give you this provision, um, which is really just that the the agreement that you'll have your job back in 12 weeks since you're not getting any compensation during that time. Um, but even among those eligible, um, only about half of them can afford to take it and do take it. Um, so, so like, for example, my mom went back to work after two weeks, um, which I, having had a baby, just like cannot imagine. <laughs> um, it's really, it's really difficult. But it's also the burden is on the individual again to pro- to prove to the employer 
that you're eligible. So pregnancy and working while you're pregnant or adoption, I can imagine as well, um, while you're working, the the whole business of of getting a kid or raising a kid is pretty distracting from work, right? It takes a lot of time. Um, It's something that is really joyful, but it's also really demanding. Um, And like my pregnancy was full of complications, as are the pregnancies of most people that I know. Um, And so while you're dealing with all of that, you're also dealing with getting a letter from your doctor, which feels like I I felt like I was like asking my mom to like help me (laughs) cut school. (laughs) Um, You know, it's it's, you have to um, make sure that it's fine. It's dated. There's all of these different requirements, paperwork wise that fall on you. And then hospitals, because they're so bureaucratic. Um, you know, they lose paperwork, they lose documents. I got, I got some bills that I shouldn't have been sent because of, I, I won't even get into it, but like little details about my insurance were wrong. Um, and so, and one of my, my husband and I, one of the things that we were most worried about before I gave birth was not the actual experience itself. Um, but it was, you know, would our child be covered under whose health care? And like, navigating the really complex rules around that. Um, there's a rule about, it's just an arbitrary rule um, that we came across that the parent whose birthday falls earlier in the year is the one who the child is insured under. So like that's just to show the extent of research that has to be done. Um, but I was like really panicking about when I would go into labor because I wanted to make sure that I still had benefits at that time and that the birth would be covered and that my baby would be covered. And I've heard stories um, personally and in the news about, about babies being presented with thousands of dollar hospital bills just because of like, um, even, even people having insurance. And this is, so we're talking about people who are covered and we know that lots of people aren't covered. Megan, one last question for you. We have been speaking with writer and editor Megan Erickson, who posted the Jacobin article, A Blueprint for Universal Childhood. Megan is an editor at Jacobin. She was on our show nearly three years ago to this very day to talk about her then-just-published book, and it's a book that everybody should definitely read, Class War, The Privatization of Childhood. Megan has uh, taught in both public and private schools in New York City. One last question for you, Megan, as we do with all of our guests. It's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And I apologize for only giving you a couple of minutes to answer this because we're kind of against the clock. But Yeah. So to what degree can we blame 70s, 1970s American feminists for poor childcare by being critical of women who stay at home, for uh, devaluing motherhood and mothers doing childcare. Can we blame this all on 1970s feminism? Oh, um, so I, I, I don't think, can, I, can you just like restate what you said? Because uh, I'm not sure that's, yeah. Because there, there, the there were there were uh, there were a lot of people, for instance, in the uh, Houston conference that I think happened in 1975. Uh, and then there are some protests in New Mexico. There are a lot of uh, women who were very upset by the devaluing of women as uh, far yeah. as being caregivers uh-huh. and being mothers, even wearing dresses. Native American uh, feminists who showed up were upset that they were being scolded for wearing yeah. dresses. Yeah. So to what extent uh, can we blame 1970s feminism for devaluing childcare? 
Yeah. So in my piece, I write about this, and I wouldn't say necessarily that um, that feminists certainly not across the board devalue childcare. I think, particularly like socialist feminists, um, especially those involved with wages for housework, were very um, active in um, advocating for childcare. But I have read a lot of reflections of feminists from that time period. Um, Ellen Willis, especially, um, has written brilliantly about this. Um, and she is very critical of herself and her role, um, you know, as we all should be and need to be as activists, um, and has a great line. So she talks about, like, yes, we knew that it was important. Um, and I mean, I think the people that were devaluing motherhood certainly existed, but they were more on the fringes. Um, and uh, what what Willis says is that it was something that people kind of paid lip service to. It was something that um, these feminists knew was kind of a vague need out there somewhere, um, but that they didn't really do enough to um, secure to secure real kind of um, progress towards it. Um, and so she she has this great quote. She says that the political has devolved into the personal with a vengeance now that she's looking for childcare for her child um, in an essay that she wrote in the 90s about kind of her reflections on, she ended up hiring a nanny um, for her child. Um, but yeah, so so I think a lot of uh, feminists, particularly those on the left, were very reflective about this um, and thoughtful about it, but that for forces that, they, that were beyond their control and some things that they could have done much better, um, it, it didn't happen. Um, I think I think it's actually a problem that is broader than feminism, um, and it's one where a lot of the feminist movements were kind of relegated to like academics and um, college campuses, and there wasn't as much of a connection um, with the labor movement and with working class people. Um, and so, so some of um, what I found and um, the historians that I read. Um, found is that um, it really kind of was a movement. Um, you know, I think there were some people trying to make those connections, but um, at the end of the day, because of everyone's different economic needs, it didn't happen. Um, and I think that's an, another reason why childcare um, kind of it's 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 difficult to do, and um, you know, the people that it affects most parents are, are some of the that's kind of the busiest time in many people's lives um, so yeah and, and and I think there's a really important um, thing that I came across as well when I was researching this piece um, which is that so the child poverty rate is really high in the United States it, it just reached 15% and dropped from around 20% and got everybody really excited about record lows um, but we live in the richest country in the world, and 15% of children live in poverty. Um, but I was also really struck as I was researching the piece to find that young children in the United States are more likely to live in poverty than any age group. Um, and so, you know, children don't vote, and um, the child rearing population is getting smaller and smaller over time, too. So I think that's another factor. I certainly would not say that it was all about the failures of feminism. Um, but I but I also think that it's 
really important to um, be critical of the past so that we can learn better and strategize for the future. Um, and, and there's lots to be critical about as well. Megan, really great having you back on the show. It's been three years, and that's way too long in between appearances. We've been speaking with writer and editor Megan Erickson, who posted the Jacobin article, A Blueprint for Universal Childhood. Megan is an editor at Jacobin, and she appeared on our show nearly three years ago to this very day to talk about her then-just-published book, and it really is an incredible book, Class War, The Privatization of Childhood. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Megan. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is Hell. We'll wrap up this week's This is Hell with a moment of truth featuring Jeff Dorchin. And this time, Jeff discovers micro-generations. The best way for you to get the word out about This is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. Thanks this week goes to everyone who shared our retrospective on the 10th anniversary of the 2008 financial collapse that we played while I was out ill last week. And thanks to Alex for putting that together. Thanks for sharing to Aramis, Julie, Dan, Gianna, Jesse, Doug, Fergus, Patrick, Lawrence, and Tom. That, fe- that show featured conversations with Jeff Foe, Ann Pettifor, James Steele, Kai Wright, Robin Hanel, and Michael Hudson, The Economist, right around the time of the collapse. Thanks to Rich and Nick for sharing a playlist of interviews we've done uh, on black radicalism that Alex also compiled and posted Online Again, thanks to Alex. And thanks to everyone who shared our recent interview with biophysical economist Pavo Yarvin-Sivu and philosopher Tara Vaden and our transition to more expensive and difficult to acquire fossil fuels. Thanks for sharing. Goes to Gorilla Gramophonics, Grig, Tony, the Anti-Capitalist League, Mark, Utopia Now Village, Villa, and Pavo and Teta's organization, which translates from the Finnish into bio-research. And not this past week's, but the week before that, our uh, online-only Patreon podcast, I discuss the Finnish concept of Sisu. So if you want to know what Sisu is and how Pavo and Teta employ Sisu in fighting climate change, you'll have to go back and listen to that Patreon podcast. All of them are there waiting for you. All you have to do is subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to all of you for sharing this is hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever. If you want to spread uh, the evil content of this is hell, all you have to do is share this is hell. Coming up on this week's show... Jeff discovers micro-generations during the moment of truth. Plus, we want to thank listeners for supporting This Is Hell and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, This Is Hell, and Alex has Hefe on the line. Micro generations. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Imagine a world with so many TV shows you didn't know what to watch, who was watching what, or when you'd ever have time to become somewhat culturally literate. Was that show about the dead people returning but not as flesh-eating zombies on last year or six years ago? And what about the one that was similar to that one but you just couldn't get through episode four? If you were to begin watching it again, would Netflix remember where in the episode you left off? Sometimes it does that. What about that show about a murder in Sweden? Or was that the American version? Is Jessica Jones still relevant? Did they ever say how he met your mother? 
What about that show that was a montage of every ethnicity and sexuality engaged in a mental orgy across time and space because they were somehow related to Daryl Hannah? Or did I dream that? Imagine a world with a century's worth of content packed into a decade and a half. Well, that world is the one we're in now, I think, unless I'm thinking of a TV show about a world like that. Cultural touchstones are following each other so rapidly they've created micro-generations. I can't even give examples because although 50 is the new 30, culturally, it's the new 130. I'm culturally 155 years old, and that's by conservative estimates. At least I'm young for a vampire. The world of sitcoms would have ended for me with the era of All in the Family, the world of comedians, the era of Richard Pryor, but even olds like Milton Berle and Jerry Lewis weren't entirely of the past. Later, it was only by dating younger women that I learned to be conversant in the Powerpuff Girls, Missy Elliott, and Chris Rock. And then, being briefly married to a middle school teacher caught me up on Sean Paul, Hot Chips, and Dave Chappelle. The young people these days are no help, though. They're even more at sea than their myriad strata of elders. A friend of mine in the movie and music industries says she'd overheard some millennials complaining about being unfamiliar with the artists at this year's Video Music Awards. My friend has a pretty panoramic eye on the popular arts, so she was astounded to hear that these kids had never heard of Ariana Grande and whoever else the new crop of, I guess, post-millennials were up on. Micro-generations. I came up with the brand, and I regret it, but the genie's out of the bottle. We're not even halfway to adulthood before a new generation starts. A generation used to last 40 to 70 years. Last year, it was like 7.7 years, and you'd have to master a whole new array of cultural code. This year, it's been sliced down to 3.35 years. A generation is irrelevant every 3.35 years. Your five-year-old is an over-the-hill stroker of the chin, wistful rememberer of when, longing for the good old days by the age of eight and a half. Early onset senescent delirium begins at your bar mitzvah. Think how disturbing that kind of acceleration can be to a society we're all supposed to be creating together. Now, I'm old. To me, Lord and Sia are new artists. I don't even know if the artists and eras I mentioned earlier match up in chronology or are even contemporaneous with the relationships and the marriage I vaguely associate them with. I'm in the same boat as these millennials and post-millennials whom time is passing by except I have more layers of temporal trivia to get lost in, and the star maker machinery keeps pumping out more kids who turn into adults who make new songs I can't get stuck in my head. They're too slippery and too small. My memory is big. It's the songs that got small. Songs with melodies that all sound the same, and new stand-up comics with new stand-up comedy that's not funny because it's not supposed to be, and new rom-coms that aren't funny in the same way rom-coms never are funny, but with new stars barely distinguishable from the slightly older ones, whose facial features also haven't been developed yet out of the porcelain fetal putty they lie latent within. And I think they're doing it on purpose. The big they, not the Alex Jones they, but a related they, like Illuminati adjacent. Think about it. They killed Bowie, Prince, and Aretha, the only three artists we all of any age could agree on. Now we're lost in this semiotic labyrinth, blown around like confetti by currents of a commercial maelstrom howling through its corridors. Sometimes I have to listen to Sly and the Family Stone for an hour or two, just to keep from putting my own eyes out so no more product gets into my head.
I find classic 70s funk is a solid anchor amid the storm. But these poor old and in the way post-millennials already getting long in the tooth, what will they have? Does Lana Del Rey count as a memory? Will they hearken back to her? Is Katy Perry riding a lion at Super Bowl halftime an anchor in a storm? Or is it too dreamlike to steady them on the sea-battered bark of the present moment? Lil Uzi, Kendrick Lamar, are the old youngsters down with them? Will those artists constitute future conduits to a soothing nostalgia? Or will this time be remembered as an era of instability? And looking back on it, no more grounding to a troubled soul than the memory of combat to a veteran with PTSD. The third season of Twin Peaks is turning out, in a way, to be the perfect artistic product of our time. And there are millennials who were way into it. The show's continuous undercurrent of violence against women casting its shadow on all activity. The grasping for identity in a technological landscape at once decayed, rusted, yet unfathomably magic in its newness. The FBI reliance on Buddhist mysticism. Never certain who they themselves are or whom they can trust to remain human. The persistence of past nuclear devastation into the future. The frightening echoes of arcane nursery rhymes and childhood trauma. The madness of repetition and addiction. But as appropriate as it may be as an artifact of our situation, what the hell kind of twisted anchor is it? We want a rock to cling to. But resting your weary soul on Twin Peaks can be as restful as trying to climb a mountain of non-Newtonian spaghetti. In the 17th century, the nostalgic got to sit back and say, Remember that play we saw about the Danish prince who suspected his mother and uncle of murdering his father? They might even have remarked on the psychological depth of the character Shakespeare that bold new author had created. Yeah, that really stayed with me. How Hamlet needed more certainty, but in his search for certainty, all he created was more doubt and despair. That was pretty cool, they might have said. Albeit erected on a foundation of indecision, that Elsinore is a rock. Compared to our era of shuffling identities, time out of sequence, unfocused anxiety, and eternal evil, mere indecision, sounds like bliss. You guys do know who Shakespeare was, right? This guy goes back to something, this, this goes back to something I discussed way back in 2009. The long view versus imbecilical time. Here, I quote myself. In imbecilical time, noses need to be blown, petty arguments must be hashed out, dogs must be walked, lost keys must be found, strange smells must be dealt with, on top of which all the great ambiguous complex and long wisdom of the ages is, of course, strangled by ideology, bowdlerized, and oversimplified, and crammed into bottles for contemporary consumption, end quote. We struggle to maintain our footing on the shifting ice of multiple zeitgeists. It's important to have something bigger than your imbecilical time to hold on to. A solid place to stand. What is that thing? The Illuminati adjacent and their client billionaires have been chipping away at our foundations bit by bit. I'm happy to see people of all ages returning to that old-time revolution. And I hear the desire to use it not as a way back to the past, but as a way to explore and fashion the future. The future, though, is getting harder and harder to believe in. No future for you, for us. We need the future to have something to aim at. But, geez, it's so butt ugly. But that old-time revolution. Prying loose the grip of the cruel, the heartless, the greedy, making them give the world back. Okay, forget the butt-ugly future. This is the long now. We have to keep our eye on the ongoing project because it's not finished. It may never be finished because, unlike a series binge, nothing real is ever finished. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So, Jeff, uh, <clears throat> steroids make me poop, so I got to get going. Rockin'. So... Stay beautiful. Until next week. 
Bye. Live from the good old U.S. of A. where capitalism is all our pimp, This Is Hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell at thisishell.com. There's now a couple of ways you can support This Is Hell at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can become a Patreon patron by just going to patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can go to thisishell.com, click on support, and you can just, you know, show your support, and you'll get a free gift here from This Is Hell, depending on how much you support us. Thanks this week goes to a lot of people, because people want our new gifts of the completely redesigned t-shirt, tote bag, and our brand new enameled uh, stainless steel camping coffee mug, which you can see a picture of me on Instagram, field testing. That's at This Is Hell Radio, field testing by the bonfire during my summer vacation, uh, right before I got really ill. So thanks to Caleb, who is getting one of our new fancy enamel stainless steel camping coffee mugs for his support. Michelle, who uh, wants a t-shirt and a mug for his support. And the tithing like commitments of Kilter and Adrian and everyone who supported This Is Hell this week. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever as dissent continues to be criminalized. Alex, who's on next week's show? Uh, next week, we'll have Daniel Trilling to talk about his book, Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe. And also Brittany Friedman to talk about her piece, Solitary Confinement and the Nation of Islam. And also maybe Mariana Mazzucato or maybe Charlene Carruthers. Uh, yeah, that would be great. Marianne Mazzucato is on our show in the past, and you should go back and listen to that interview. We've shared that with our Patreon patrons, but you can find that online as well. And Brittany, really sorry about uh, not uh, being here last week. I was really ill, but I'm looking forward to having you on the show because I don't think people realize uh, the kind of uh, religious discrimination that takes place on a regular basis within the U.S. prison system, and I think they'd be fascinated to learn about it. All right, so uh, real quick, our uh, hangover cure this week was... Oh, something that we didn't even want to endorse. It was called H-Proof or some junk that was foisted on listener Richard M. on Facebook. Whatever. That's not important. I want to thank our guests this week, Megan Erickson, and who talked to us just now about a blueprint for universal childhood. Thanks to Bruce E. Levine, author of Resisting Illegitimate Authority, A Thinking Person's Guide to Being an Anti-Authoritarian. Uh, let's see. Thanks to Carol Anderson for being back on our show this time to discuss her new book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. And thanks to reporter Allie Gross, who wrote the investigative piece of the Detroit Free Press, Detroit Real Estate Game Creates Chaos in Neighborhoods. Also, thanks to Leo and Alex for producing this week's show. We're looking forward to having Rotten History back next week. Ronaldo had to take the, the week off. Uh Follow us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Sign up for our email newsletter at This Is Hell.com. Follow us on Instagram at This Is Hell, uh, at This Is Hell Radio. No, at This Is Hell. This is not the media. This is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky. Focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 